How do you make a vacation last? How do you hold on to the joy, the clarity, the calm? Easy. You go to Aruba. You'll spend your time relaxing on cool, white, sandy beaches and floating in healing blue water. You'll meet locals brimming with gratitude for an island that redefines what a paradise can be. You won't just feel great. You'll feel relaxed, renewed, and ready for life. That's the Aruba effect. Plan your trip at aruba.com. Survivor 46 is here and so is On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast. And we have a twist this season. The winner of Survivor 45, D. Vyadaris, will be joining us every week. We're going behind the scenes of the biggest moments, the how and the why things happen, and the strategy and analysis you can only get from someone like me, a Survivor winner. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcast. to Mike and Maurice's Mind Escape. Let us help you escape your mind. Welcome back to Mike and Maurice's Mind Escape. We have episode number 268 today. Uh, it's a special episode. I'm joined by top escapee Sandy, uh, who's back on the show, and our friend Laura, who is the Megalith Hunter on YouTube. If you are not familiar with her channel, I have the link down below. Please go subscribe to her channel. Uh, she lives on Malta and you know has all these awesome videos and everything uh and you can follow her uh i also have her uh twitter at the top and sandy's twitter is at uh part of the series please follow sandy she's an amazing follow on twitter as well um so today we are going to be reviewing ancient apocalypse the new graham hancock series on netflix which has drawn a lot of controversy um, if you watch or listen to Mind Escape, you know that I have discussed Graham Hancock on many episodes. Um, and we're going to give a fair critique. Um, there's a lot of stuff being thrown around out there. Um, a lot of ad hominem, a lot of, you know, BS. And we're just going to give a fair shake and talk about the actual episodes and the evidence and everything like that. Uh, but before we get started, if you want to support Mind Escape, all you have to do is click the link tree link down below. Um, I've got top episodes on there. Uh, please subscribe to our YouTube channel. Give us a like. Um, if you're listening, you know, we do our shows live on YouTube. So that, that's where you would find us doing the live show. Um, and if you are, you know, watching right now on YouTube, we do live or we I'm sorry, we do videos on Spotify and we also have episodes on all audio podcast platforms, including Apple podcast. Uh, and you can support us just by leaving a nice review. We would appreciate that. We have a merch store. We also have a Patreon. I'm not going to go too much into that. Um, and you like this kind of topic. We've had Randall Carlson on a few times, Laird Scranton, Dr. Gregory Little, uh, tons of people that like to discuss this stuff. So go check that out. And uh, without further ado, welcome on the show, Laura and Sandy. Thank you both for doing this. Thanks Thank for you for inviting us, us, Mike. 
Yeah, I know this has been a kind of a hot topic lately, and I think that uh, we can all do this justice. I think we're all very familiar with his work, and we're familiar with what's being said out there. Um, so yeah, so let's get started. Do you want to add any opening thoughts, uh, Laura? Sure. I mean, okay, so I mean, I guess I can be a little bit clear on what my position is on Graham Hancock. I've been following his work since the 90s. I've read all of his books um, on ancient history. And one of the reasons I was drawn to the topic of ancient history, firstly as a hobby before I started my YouTube channel, was because there is a lot of mystery. There's a lot of things we don't understand about the ancient past, and most experts will be the first to say that there are a lot of gaps in our knowledge. Um, Obviously, the hypothesis that Graham Hancock has put forward since then is an intriguing one. And I know that he wasn't the originator of it, and it has a longer history as a concept, but um, it's mostly his book that I've read on the lost civilization hypothesis. I don't think personally that there's enough evidence to support it at this point but I, I'm still fascinated by it. And in Ancient Apocalypse, what I, what I find interesting about um, series like this, even Ancient Aliens, even though I don't actually believe the Ancient Aliens, um, Ancient Alien Astronaut Theory at all, is they open your mind to certain sites that you might not have heard of before. So they do certainly play a good role in opening up knowledge. So a lot of people may not click on a history documentary, but they'll click on something like that and then they'll find out a little bit about um, a site they've never heard of. Okay, so I do see um, value in series like that. But one thing that does irritate me a tiny bit, just a tiny bit, is when Arguments have been put forward for a good 30 years and many experts in the past have written detailed counter arguments to them. Very, and I'm not talking about vitriolic attacks. I'm talking about in the past, archeologists have sat down and often in blogs or if there's been an actual academic paper on this kind of evidence for the alternative hypothesis, they've written a counter argument to it. And what I would then expect is the person that, and this is not just Graham Hancock, but any alternative, um, anybody in the alternative history sphere, what I would expect is that when they've made an argument and someone's written a very detailed and interesting counter argument, they would at least either write another rejoinder to that or tweak the original hypothesis or maybe shift their focus somewhat. But I don't find that happens very often. I find the same things just keep getting regurgitated over and over again in lectures, in books, um, and on TV. So that's something that irritates me. And there is quite, there's a number of examples I have where that's the case. And then there's also examples where very detailed counter arguments have been written, followed by a rejoinder, followed by maybe some change of opinion, and, and that's good. That's kind of, in my opinion, how it should be. So those, those are my loose thoughts. And obviously I, I do think that the good thing about alternative researchers who are not working daily in the academic sphere is that they can look at, they can collect and synthesize data from many different sources. They can take an interdisciplinary approach and they can come up with ideas and they can speculate. And sometimes that speculation might be quite wild 
But who cares? It doesn't mean that they can find enough evidence to support their hypothesis. It doesn't mean they'll ever be able to prove it. But what's wrong with asking the questions because you're in a position to be able to do so? I do not understand the vitriol and personal attacks against people that choose to, to do that as their career. So that's, I think that's enough for my opening remarks. Thank you, Laura. Very uh, well put. Um, I agree with some of that stuff. <clears throat> I actually wrote mine out a little bit here. I don't know. I'm a nerd. Um, but uh, my opening thoughts are, so when I started this podcast roughly like five years ago, it's going to be the five-year anniversary right around Christmas. Uh, Maurice and I will do a anniversary show. Um, I was going through a spiritual awakening slash beginning of sort of like a knowledge quest. I wasn't really into any. I mean, I've always been fascinated by ancient cultures, ancient Egypt and Rome and Greece and stuff like that. But I never really looked deeply into them. Um, so, you know, he was kind of like a catalyst. Like you mentioned, reading Fingerprints of the Gods, Magicians mm. of the Gods, and even more recently, um, you know, um, what is it, America uh, before America? America before. America before, yeah. Heaven's so, mirror, yeah, there's been many. Underworld. Um, yeah, underworld. I, I mean, I actually like um, all of it, Supernatural. I mean, if you like psychedelics and ancient psychedelic use, that's an awesome book, too. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I know Sandy likes it. Um, but, uh, so yeah, so he was a huge inspiration. I mean, I love those early episodes with Graham Hancock and Graham Hancock and Randall Carlson on Joe Rogan. And, you know, it's this thing. It's like, oh, man. Uh, I didn't know about a lot of these sites, Gobekli Tepe and, um, you know, all these, you know, kind of sites that you don't really learn about in school. Um, mm. and, and, you know, these were discovered in, I mean, Gobekli Tepe goes back to like 95 with Klaus Schmidt. So it's not like it's a new find per se. Um, so, yeah, that was the catalyst for it. And then, you know, um, I've actually talked to archaeologists too online uh, that have been inspired by Graham Hancock to get into archaeology, um, mm -hmm. which is, I think, important to uh, point out as well. Um, you know, he's been a huge advocate for psychedelics and ending the war on drugs. I appreciate that. That's not really in this series at all, but I just wanted to point that out. Um, the attacks on him being racist are really... <laughs> really stupid and uh immature in my opinion he's married to a woman of color and has kids and grandkids and everything so i think that you know you're hurting his family by doing that because it's just not true um so i think that that's just very disingenuous and the people calling him out are that hoops guy who's you know let's face it a turd um you know there's that flint dibble guy you know there's these people that are um, calling him out, but then they won't debate him, which is kind of like, what? You're going to make a big stink about the series and what he's doing, but then you won't even uh, debate him on fact or meet him on a medium where you can present ideas. You know, it, let's say they all went on Joe Rogan. You know, you can pull up pictures and videos and anything you want to present your ideas. So it just doesn't make sense to me that they want to sling mud and then not do anything about it, which is kind of stupid to me. Um, but yeah, I mean, Graham's been, oh, that article that was written saying that this is the most dangerous, uh, you know, um, series on Netflix. <laughs> That's so laughable. If you, has anybody ever seen the documentaries that are on Netflix? Cause there's some pretty wild shit on there. Um, that, that, <laughs> I don't watch it. <laughs> that's far beyond, you know, this in terms of reality, if we're going by like science yeah. and what's what. So that's laughable. Mm -hmm. Um, 
you know, that being said, we're going to make this a fair critique. And I do have some issues with some of the stuff. Um, as Laura mentioned, um, one thing that did turn me off is the constant attack on archaeology. Like there's some sort of agreed upon narrative or cabal or whatever. And I don't agree with that. I think that it's just human nature and we get into like the philosophy of science. And I think if anything, uh, the critique should be made that, um, you know, uh, the critique should be made that we should be talking about the philosophy of science and paradigm shifts and um, these scientists just maybe not having a good background in philosophy and, and, and things like that. That's the argument that should be made and not necessarily attacking them because these are just systems that are in place. Um, I don't think there's anybody intentionally saying this or that or creating these things. It's somebody writes a paper, somebody writes a book. Uh, the narrative uh, gets preserved and then gets passed down or somebody wrote a book 30 years ago and they're still using that as a, like a, a, a guideline for, the, you know, that aspect of archaeology or whatever. You know, so if anything, we should be just trying to forward, you know, with new evidence and new information and stuff like that. So I love both archaeology and science, but I also love fringe and weird things because that's what we do on this podcast. We explore the mysteries of life. Um, so... Yeah, I mean, that's pretty much um, where I'm going with that. You mentioned the ancient alien stuff, which I, I agree with. It's I don't believe aliens built anything on the planet. Um, but I do think that they show ar or archaeology, you know, archaeological sites and megalithic sites that you won't find anywhere else. My problem is, science, if you're so mad, make a stupid documentary. Make a bunch of documentaries. Go to Gobekli Tepe. Make an amazing, you know, there's that guy with Jens Norgren or whatever, the guy that's on, you know, Twitter tweeting about mm -hmm. Gobekli Tepe. Make the best Gobekli Tepe documentary uh, for what we know so far. You know, I don't see, I see everybody wanting to criticize, but like, you know, scientists for the most part are not good science communicators. They're not good at conveying the ideas that they're either discovering or believe or whatever. So, um, for them to attack and then not do anything, it's kind of like, oh, what are we doing here? Um, yeah. So, yeah, so that's kind of where I'm at with it. Are, I mean, are they jealous? Because, like, Graham Hancock can spe speculate and, and look at a bigger picture um, where they're subject to the scientific method. I don't know. But, I mean, I'm just – I don't know. Bottom line is if I had to – the one thing that really turned me off, uh, aside from all the good things I, I said about him, the one thing that turned me off is the constant barrage on archaeology because I just don't think it's necessary. Um, I think you, he could have presented his ideas um, and let them stand on their own as opposed to every episode, multiple times an episode, saying, you know, they're, they're preventing us from knowing the truth, blah, 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 blah. So um, that's my thoughts. I will – Shut up now and let Sandy uh, take over. Well, hi, hi, everybody. As you know, I'm a random Twitterer that somehow has found myself on the internet again. And, my, <laughs> and I, you know, I, I'm one of those people that found a book and became interested in it. And that was Fingerprints in the Garden. And I said to you before, Mike, that it came through from my aunt. And I read that book and I was wow but i've always i mean i've always watched both sides of, of documentaries i've watched the zawi nawaz things i watch professor alice roberts you know i i've watched mm -hmm. the oh, a really good team they're called the prehistory guys i like mm -hmm. i like mainstream and i like fringe stuff because i like to find the way in, in 
of both sides of the story because somewhere in the mix there's the truth. So because I love Fingerprints of the Gods so much um, and I just lost my parents, my aunt decided to take me to Egypt, which I absolutely loved. And the thing that twigged me onto Graham Hancock and why I'm kind of in support of his constant wonder is because the first place that we went to were the pyramids in Giza. And I went through a narrow little tunnel and I thought, how small are these people? And that's all I thought. Because you, you just call through. And it was when I went to the museum in Cairo, and I saw alabaster boxes solid that I thought this, this is really weird because we'd always been told that pharaohs are buried in those pyramids and that at, at the time that they are dying, they decide which of their objects they'd like to collect and put in there with them. And I thought there's not a chance in hell that this pharaoh could have chosen those objects after that pyramid was finished unless they removed the top and built it all back up again. So that was my first feeling that something about mainstream archaeology wasn't all that it was cracked up to be. But there wasn't much going, you know, in terms of YouTube and stuff like that. There were just Graham's programs on Channel 4, which I've watched, his Underworld, which I've watched. But that led me on to reading a book um, that he wrote with, uh, called Keeper of Genesis, with Robert Bavall. And that was really interesting because um, that did the Orion correlation, which is how we heavily denies, but um, it, it, it is true. That is the first instance where we can say that there is a definite astrological alignment. And it doesn't seem, there doesn't seem to be a reason for the denial. Um, and then that got me onto something called the Edfu texts, which are written in, a, in later dynasties, pointing to Zeptepi, and that the pyramids have got something to do with that. So in all honesty, I haven't gone through and I haven't Z read major Just so people know, Zeptepi means the first time. Um, the first Geneva. time. And what Robert Baval thinks that Zeptepi means um, and where the star connection comes in is that when our star burst or when Earth became Earth, that was the creation of mankind. That is when we all, when Earth was formed. And that's what they regard as Zeptepi. So that is perhaps their, their obsession with the stars. Um, I've, I mean, you guys know that I love Graham Hancock to bits and pieces, but I've got the same objections as, as you do, is I think that he should put his story and he should carry on fighting out of his corner with what he feels is the truth, rather than attacking archeologists. Likewise, I feel that um, he's never gonna debate Flint Sibble, by the way. He said in his talk that the only person that he will debate is John Hoops and he will only do it on Joe Rogan because that will reach an, um, an audience of millions and millions of people. Um, but so I haven't spoken to archeologists other than one recently who happens to work at the Origin Center. And I spoke to him and I said to him, listen, what's going on? Because they, all, they retweeted the most dangerous documentary in the whole world. And I said, how could you possibly say this when um, the Rock Art Institute is founded by David Lewis Williams? who's an extremely good friend of Graham Hancock, and I cannot see David Lewis Williams endorsing any of the shit that, oh, sorry, of no, what you're saying. You're good, you're good. Has it been enough time? Your mic's clicking a little bit though, just <laughs> FYI. Has it been, I meant duck. <laughs> and, I, and I asked him, and I said to him, what is this racial 
story about. And what he explained to me is that it's not necessarily the fact that it's race. It's just that the cultures that we're talking about here are South Americans, Peruvians, Mexicans, and cultures that have been colonized and had their traditions taken away from them. Or, or you know, when the conquistadors came, they said, no, no, no more ayahuasca for you. You know, now you need to drink the wine and the blood of Jesus and, and, and the bread of Jesus. And they... They feel that this documentary has taken away things that have been accredited to them and it's just another knock against their culture and the things that they've built up. And, and that is how they are feeling, not more, you know, about, you know, a, a black and white issue. Um, they sh and he said that it should be rather rephrased as a cultural issue instead of race, if that makes sense. But anyway, so that's a roundabout way of, of how I come into this and how I'm because of that, I'm more on the fringe, but, um, you know, I left it that alone for years and I've only really come back into it recently since I met you, Mike, and you, you led me down this, you led me astray, man. Well, and, uh, I apologize. <laughs> what have you done? So yeah, that's, that's pretty much where, where, where I come from. And I, and I wish that Graham wouldn't, you know, the humanities are all being closed down. Universities are closing down archaeology, archaeology departments. They're closing down music. They're closing down everything. So it's absolutely important that we do not discourage people from going into this field of study at all by saying that they are the crackpots. Um, and I, you know, I wouldn't also put Graham Hancock in the same kind of class as Eric von Daniken. Um, because I, I, I didn't even know who he was until recently, because I've never watched Ancient Aliens. But interestingly... Um, uh, you're, uh, we can hear there's like some sort of ruffling. You're, just be careful because your mic and like paper or something like that. Um, interestingly, uh, Andrew Gallimore said that recently someone, Robert Carhart Harris, had a conversation with Jordan Peterson and people crucified him for that. And he said, you should, whatever brings attention to the magic that psychedelics can do is good. So the fact that Eric Van Dadeken said that a chariot landed at Tiwanaku got people talking about Tiwanaku. So who cares about these people? Like Laura said, and you said, at least there's a, it's regenerated an interest from kids that would otherwise be watching, I don't know, any old shit on TV. Yeah, I mean, um, that's important. I do, look, I do understand the pushback, though, on, like, an Ancient Aliens. I think it's it's an, it's important to point out, though, too, a lot of the pushback on the Graham Hancock stuff is the fact that he's saying that there was an earlier civilization that gave knowledge and rise to all these other civilizations. Um, I think they were. And, and um, so, you know, we'll talk about that. I, you know... I think it's entirely possible that there's stuff that, you know, civilizations and um, cultures that we just haven't found yet. I mean, look at Gobekli Tepe. That's a perfect example. Do I think that they're advanced in the sense that we are now? Absolutely not. I think that that's kind of an, an asinine idea. But maybe they were more in tune with the earth and understood more um, of our nature and the planet and understanding, you know, maybe the world around them that they could do amazing things using nature around them that we just can't do. So I do believe that that's possible. Um, so let's get into this. Um, episode number one. Um, this is the one, uh, I don't know if can one of you look up the names of each of the episodes. I forgot to write that down. First but one is the Nung Padang. 
yeah, the first one is yeah, um, uh, Ganoon Padang, mm. and, and I'm uh, glad you know why, Mike. Why? Do, many many moons ago, do you remember our good friend Martin Ferretti? Yeah. And I emailed you guys. Shout out to Martin to if you're you. out there. Shout out to Martin, and also Martin, get back on Twitter. I miss you. Um, you guys said, and I mentioned um, Ganung Padang to you, and you at the time said that you felt that it, it, it wasn't man-made and it looked exactly to you like a broken-up version of Giant's Causeway. Yeah. What do you think about it now? Yeah, so, I mean, that, and, and even Graham says that in this episode. He's like, this is a geological process. Let me find what it's called. Uh, I've got it here. It's um, Once There Was a Flood is episode one. Oh, once there was a flood. Okay, cool. Yeah, which Thank is on Gunung Um, So, yeah, the... Here, let me pull up a picture, actually. I do have some pictures of Gunung Padang, um, which is in Java in Indonesia. Um, here we have the top. As you can see, the top of the, uh, the mountain hill. I don't know if it's a mountain or hill. I don't know what they're, they're calling it, but... Um, and then here's like what most people have seen. And that's kind of what's in the documentary. Um, so I mentioned to Sandy, like what she said, like a broken up giant's causeway um, from, you know, from Ireland. Um, and I still believe that that's the geological process. I believe in this episode, though, Graham mentions that that's how these, you know, blocks uh, were made naturally, but then they were like quarried and then brought up to the top of this, which is a 300 foot, uh, 360 foot climb up. Um, so yeah, so uh, Ganoom Padang has naturally formed col columnar um, jointing from basalt cracking. The stones were cut and repurposed and then placed in a rectangular uh, manner. Um, you know, the, I think they, um, they're, they were at the bottom of the hill, the quarry. So they had to be carried up, like I said, 360 feet, which is crazy. Um, you know, he, again, in the beginning, he criticized archaeologists. Uh, Ganun Padang uh, means mountain of light. Um, and it is, uh, it has a sacred uh, spring at the bottom, too, at the base, which is, I guess, not uncommon for other sites. He does talk to an archaeologist, Ali Akbar, um, and he also talked to uh, archaeologist Danny Hillman. Um, supposedly there's different layers, and they've taken core samples and things like that. There is a layer that dates back to 5200 B.C. Um, the stone wraps around the terrace. By the way, if anybody's... I'll, I'll just say that spoiler alert, because we're going to get into some details of this thing. So, I mean, it's not like, a, you know, a movie with a surprise ending or anything like that. But if you want to watch this and you haven't seen it, I would suggest maybe turning it off because we're going to go through a lot of detail. Um, there is uh, possible mortar used. It has five terraces that are roughly 190 feet long, roughly 50 blocks or 50, uh, 50,000 blocks are found at the site. Um, and he kind of frames it like it's some sort of step pyramid too. Um, he questions like what's the actual shape of a pyramid kind of a thing. And then, uh, proposes the idea that maybe this could have been like some sort of super ancient pyramid. I don't know. Do you guys have anything to add so far? Um, I'm not, I'm, yeah, I think the mortar that he mentioned was found at a site called, uh, Nan Madol more, more clearly. Which yes, is made up of the. Uh, yeah, you're correct. 
But um, what I think that Graham should have done here, because to me this doesn't this doesn't resonate with the with the definition of of a period of a pyramid, despite the fact that it steps up to a peak. I think he should he should have classified this more along a mound type structure, similar to maybe Poverty Point. But um, where the stones came from, they were they they came from quite a few miles away and they, and they were carried up um and the interesting thing is that when you look at it that it does look like a bit of a broken up um giant's causeway but the thing that interests me um is its alignments specifically the gates that point towards um the volcano so gates are not all these sacred sites are normally pointed towards something sacred um, and in those, you know, in those days, volcanic gases or things like that could have been sacred. Um, so uh, he's, you know, they they've done a number of studies. Originally, it was uh, 500 BC. Um, they did a bit of surface investigations. I think he's done his ground penetrating radar. Um, an interesting thing that came up, um, and it was mentioned by Flint Dibble is that um, you can do a ground penetrating ra radar, but what they didn't show in the show, and we don't know if they've done it, is that you've got to truth it because you can have um, misreading. So if there's, a sh if there's a shift going on, which we won't feel in tectonic plates, it might create a space that isn't there. So these are things that you've got to do a number of times to get an actual uh, honest reading. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. First, the bad news. SAP Business AI won't help you generate cubist versions of your family's holiday photos. But it will help you understand which supplier is best to help you roll out your plant-based packaging in Southeast Asia. Or identify the training your junior project manager needs to rise up the ranks. And automate repetitive tasks while you focus on big innovations. So you can be ready for the next opportunity. Revolutionary technology. Real-world results. That's SAP Business AI. Great points. Um, so, you know, there, there, there are a couple of cultural layers. So, so far, they've gone down four cultural layers. Um, they've done core drilling down. They are down to 100 meters, and they've pulled up sediment, which they say would date it back to 24,000 years. Yes, yeah, so the core drilling was found between 3,000 and 8,000, um, and then even up to... 11,600, which he mentions 100 feet down, which is layer four, or layer four, I'm sorry, is 24,000 years old, like you mentioned. So they did a bunch of core drilling, um, and they came back with different um, timelines and stuff like that. Um, and there's also three large rectangular chambers and tunnels that are found on the scans that are, like you mentioned, the voids, um, which he kind of connects to the idea, again, of being some sort of pyramid with like a kings and queens chamber type of scenario i'm not saying that that's what was said but that's kind of the vibe that i was getting um, but if you look at somewhere like um where they've just discovered homo homo naledi 
which is which is in itself a good reason to say that we should never ever say that people of the same culture can't exist because up until two weeks ago the paleontology was absolutely adamant that nobody but homo sapiens could have done anything possibly like uh Naledi did but they worked inside a cave structure which was so difficult to get into so what's to say that inside gunung isn't a cave structure that definitely was used spiritually and there definitely is coal in those chambers and those coal is pulling up car radiocarbon dates of around about twenty thousand years ago but I, I i just i feel i feel like the balance of information isn't isn't being brought in to say these are the possible options but i feel it's this one if that makes sense yeah. so it is possible in the same way as naledi made a ritual space out of caves that no one thought that they could that would that were naturally forming and maybe there is a naturally forming cave because it is oh, they've got that cave in the pyramid of giza where um and you and you'll see that all over the world um you know you'll see in delphi that the whole that the whole of that site was built because of the calastrian spring so i mean that could have been the site it doesn't necessarily mean that they dug out chambers and and built a step pyramid on top of it laura do you have anything to add i mean i feel like it it's a, a modified natural hill and there's a lot of debate about the um, about the samples because whatever they're pulling out might not be cultural. It could just be something natural. So then, obviously, it's going to have a really old date. Um, so that's something that I, I mean, I, I'm not super familiar with this site. I haven't read all of the excavation reports and things like that. But that was my kind. Of, the first thing I thought when I was watching it was that it just looked like a modified hill. It's definitely had some kind of activity on it, but I'm not seeing it as a, a completely man-made step pyramid that's really, really ancient. Yeah, and I think he pointed to that being terraced, though. Like, it wasn't, like what you're saying, it wasn't man-made, but they, you know, I, I don't know if anybody's familiar, but there's this um, site called Daskaleo in the Cyclades, um, which is off the coast of Karos Island, which is an archaeological site, um, where they turned one of these hill-type structures off the coast of one of the Greek islands into a terraced pyramid-looking structure. I think that's kind of the vibe that he was going for um, on this. But then but, the core samples don't really matter in that case. Right. Because the core samples are just part of a natural mound. Right. And then you also you have him pumping up uh, Danny Hillman, who has kind of a bunch of out-of-the-box, outside-the-box theories. But, I mean, he, I mean, Danny Hillman, I forget what his education is, but I think he had, like, a pretty good education that was mentioned in the um, yeah, thing. So yeah, it's not I mean, like... He, he's, he's a scientist. Right. That's what he's I'm saying. So it's not like some of these people are, like, legitimate scientists. They're not, like, just random people he's picking off the Internet to talk about this. And also it's important to point out uh, the site in Java was also part of Sundaland, and at the end of the last um, ice age, or the la during the last ice age, this would have been um, this whole the whole um, area of Indonesia would have been connected to where Australia is. That's important to point out. Yes. There would there would have been a land yes. bridge at the time. Um, and you mentioned Sandy uh, Nanmandal, which they say is nine hundred yeah, year years old or something I was like that. 
because the yeah. Nanmadol is the site that, that, that Graham use, uses, and I, and I think he's correct to use it to correlate um, the spiritual space of Gunung Padang because Nanmadol, it does run out into the Java Sea and it does run out onto mm -hmm. that Sunda shelf. I will point out, and this this struck me, and this is not really on topic, but the beach he was standing on was super dirty. Like, pit, let's pick up the garbage, all right? Like, I was very disappointed. Like, we need to get our act together and uh, save the planet here because the amount of garbage that was on the beach he was standing on was just disgusting. Um, so, yeah, we need to figure that out. Um, and then he goes into the whole flood myths throughout history and the connections and... Uh, goes through some Joe Rogan clips from when he's been on. Um, so we can move on from this episode unless you guys have anything else to add at this point. No, I'm good. No, let's move on. Good. Okay. I have one final take on it. My takeaway is Ganoom Padang is a very interesting site that should be studied further with an open mind. Uh, I would need to see a lot more data to suggest some of the claims of the chambers and the functions like we mentioned. Um, the area, like that, if anybody's heard of the Bada Valley, um, megaliths, which are, you know, kind of in the same area, um, those are really not, there's not a lot known about those sites either. Um, I don't necessarily agree with the non-Medal connection based on pictures and things that I've seen. Um, I, again, I did not like the constant reminder about mainstream archaeology being wrong. Um... But don't you think that maybe his his irritation is yeah, is that that's, that's the ground what it penetrating is. radar has shown something and they have pulled up coal and they have radiocarbon dated materials from from a coal drilling, so there's something there. Yeah, and it's just an anathema to me as to why archaeologists haven't taken that by the horns and gone, oh my god, there's something here we can really get well, into. You, you mentioned something but it, but earlier. Instead, they haven't. You mentioned something earlier, which is the funding. They're shutting down schools. There's not, I mean, look, we can go in. There's a, that's a whole different episode. But I think if they made, if they could get the archaeology out there, meaning like right now there's a bunch of science communicators, but they're like um, theoretical physicists. People want to hear a theoretical physicists, astrophysicists. People want to be in awe and shock. They don't want to be like taken through like, oh, we got to sift through this, you know, layer to get to this pottery. And, you know, you got to make it interesting, get creative with it. Like, you know, make it a, make it a thing. And then people will be driven to that thing and, and it'll become a, um, you know, a more recognized discipline. I, I don't look, you mentioned I mean, the humanities. This, it's not an empirical science. So this is why we're debating right now and talking about this because it's not an empirical science. And I think you can make it more interesting. We move so. on, there was something uh, I did post it on Twitter, but after um, Lee Berger made his um, Naledi announcement, there was um, a there, there was a chat between various paleontologists that um, had all sworn that I mean, basically their work went up in flames. So, I, I mean, Lee Berger, but the, the evidence there is absolutely undeniable. And one of the guys came on and he said, listen, he said, this isn't, he said, this shouldn't have taken any of us by surprise. Because on some island, and I cannot remember the name of it, there was a dwarf. Sorry, I don't even know if you're allowed to say that word anymore. There was a homo, very small. Homo floriensis, the hobbit, uh, hominid. The hobbit, yeah. And, no, and 
like Gunung, it was in a remote place. I mean, no one had even heard. I only heard of Gunung Parang because I'd heard of Gebekli Tepe, and I just Google what came before. And everyone knew that that existed. And they just thought, you know what? We cannot write about that because that means rewriting our textbooks. And to be honest, it's too lazy. It's on an island. No one's ever going to know about it. It's okay if we hide it and move on. And they, 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 they all admitted to the fact that it was inconvenient to find that, so they ignored it. All right, moving on. Episode number two, if somebody can find the title. Laura, do you have the title up? Yeah, Stranger <laughs> in a Time of Chaos. Okay, Stranger in a Time of Chaos. All right, so this episode um, talks about the Cholula Pyramid um, in Puebla, and supposedly, um, you know, it was destroyed... Uh, or, you know, the conquistadors came in 1519 and destroyed a bunch of stuff, as we mentioned earlier. Um, you know, the uh, Colombians coming in and, you know, doing the whole thing. Um, but, yeah, this is called the Great Pyramid of Cholula. It's uh, 213 feet uh, or 65 meters. Um, yeah. Do either of you want to... Uh, jump in here with anything first before I get into my thing. Um, I think the first thing that I thought when I saw this episode was I thought of Notre Dame and how that had been built over a church. And I thought about the, the central cave that was messy at the bottom of Egypt. Um, and I thought about the church that now um, when I when when I was in Greece and I did the walk to Eleusis and I there was a church built and it now dominates most of the Keramika site because they don't they don't the Greeks don't like to acknowledge the the Eleusinian mysteries because it's it just doesn't fit in with with the orthodoxy um so that you know that that again that's you know what i thought about i thought about the the conquistadors um and how they've burned a lot of things um and that you know we don't know what exactly is at the bottom of that but sacred sites start from something and i and i think that when you go into those caves there's something more to be said yeah absolutely um so the pyramid was built with adobe bricks. Let me take this gandum thing. I don't have any pictures of um, uh, this pyramid, unfortunately. Uh, I've got some pictures. If you're listening, if you want to check out, uh, I, I will have some. I had some for Gandum Padang, uh, and I will have some for some of the other sites going forward. But um, it'll be a little bit of mix here. Uh, yeah, so it, it was built with adobe bricks. It's 400 by 400 uh, at the base. It's larger than the great pyramid in terms of like area that it covers uh it was finished in 1200 a.d um the tunnels were cut uh in oh the tunnels they found um murals uh depicting mythology and art and architecture um i think the archaeologist's name was joffrey or jeffrey mccafferty yeah, yeah. um mm -hmm. yeah um so he uh, great okay so there was different building periods um there was i think the oldest one was 500 bc and then it gets to then there was another building period at 300 a.d and then another one at 800 a.d 
I think Graham Hancock kind of referenced it as like a Russian nesting doll, kind of with the layers yeah. and everything like that. Um, so yeah, the building was over like a 1700 year span. Nobody knows, uh, you know, why it was exactly built. It's somewhat of a hole in Mexican history. He says back to the spring, you mentioned the spring, um, in Greece and we mentioned the spring at Ganum Padang. There is a sacred spring at the bottom of this. Um, there is an inner chamber that was discovered that was pretty secretive. Um, and as he far does, as, he as it was built. What's up? He does. He does mention why he thinks it was built. Okay, so and he, yeah, he 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 mentions uh, the astronomical alignments. Um, and he mentions that. Uh, so he he does he does mention that as um, a reason why it was built. He said that they people are not fully investigating the sites, in the same way. Uh, you know the the caves at. Uh, the underground cave system Darren at Giza. Kuyu. No, no, no. The, uh, at at Giza, that Andrew. Collins oh yeah, yeah. Collins Cave. Discovered yeah. a Collins Cave, and then Zawi Nawaha said these things never existed, and told Andrew that he could never go back to the Giza Plateau again. And then Zawi went and made a documentary, <laughs> and sealed the caves on on those very same caves, <laughs> and then he went and he sealed them up. Now you see the same thing inside of Cholula, where you can see mines, but every um, where you are, uh, where you can go down further and see exactly what's going on and perhaps get to the core of the cave, they have gated those doorways and no one has been allowed in there. They are just not allowed to go. Yeah, so we so they so there is no definitive answer as to what the bottom what the bottom is. But there is evidence, um, the same as on the Sphinx of Giza, where there's restoration work. So someone has gone and seen that there was perhaps a tiny little temple and, they, and they've built and they've built until its footprint is now absolutely massive. But he, he does say it's an astronomical alignment. Um, and that's why he, he thinks it was built. Okay. Um, so you mentioned the astronomical alignment, and this was supposedly it's oriented towards the setting sun on the solstice. Um, he also mentions a mythology that the and also a volcano. Yeah, oh yeah, exactly. Um, also, he mentions that a race of giants built it as part of a mythology. Again, I'm not a big giants person. When people mention that, I like, what are we talking about here? Are we talking about like mental giants? Are we talking about physical giants? Are we talking about, um, you know, like what are we talking about? Because there's tall people. There's tall people now, you know, Yao Ming, Shaq, you know, they're seven, eight feet you know, tall. No, what I realize is I'm a giant. You are? Do you, know, you know how tiny Graham and Santa are? Oh, really? <laughs> I had to go like. Ah! <laughs> oh. But what an interesting thing that I heard is that I mean, if we don't believe that there were giants or bigger people, I mean, the Denisovans were the giants of of that kind of species. But if we look at things like the di a dinosaur is now a chicken, so to say that there was a bigger civilization or a bigger um, version of us at some point isn't such a stretch. Maybe they just meant that they were really tall. I mean, the, the Denisovans shrunk well, that's down like, Even in Afri 
Africa, you have a tribe of the shortest people on the planet, and you there's a tribe with the tallest, and there's a tribe with the tallest people on the planet. So that just shows the diversity, even on, you know, one continent, you can go from one extreme to another. So I, I you know, I'm not saying that there wasn't, but I think when people <laughs> mention that, they're mentioning like. 15 foot people that are huge and strong and Goliath. And, and I don't believe in that at all. So, um, but I mean, if you look, at, if you look at just, just on that note, if you look at other stories, I mean, we hear Laird Scranton talking and no one's made a fuss when he's made a really interesting observation to say that in Orkney, um, round about the time of Scarborough Bray, there were very small people, black, very small people, um, that the, and he, the way that he describes them and the pictures, the, the the effigies of them that are drawn, they almost look like the aliens at well, the aliens at Ruwa. So people discuss giants, but they also talk about really small people as well. Well, yeah. So I the mean, size fairy or fey is, people has been within the mythology yeah, yeah, yeah. idea for a while. Uh, let's keep this moving though. I don't want to hang too much because we got to get through a lot of stuff though. Even though there is. Um, a lot of good stuff here. Uh, it says Aztec, Aztecs created terraces kind of like the Hanging Gardens in certain places he mentions. Um, so, and oh, uh, Quetzalcoatl, we can't go without mentioning him. The Feathered Serpent. Um, and that's the idea I think some people have a problem with, is this idea that within this mythology, he's saying that there's this bearded, heavily bearded person that comes as a sort of a savior or helps push along civilization that brings animal husbandry and agriculture and all that kind of stuff um and he's saying that that's in their mythology i haven't been able to find too much um other than like so that's the argument he's saying that there's this bearded person that comes to these different locations throughout history and helps push you know civilization further along and academics are saying no 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 those were the colombians or the uh, Europeans that came in and recreated their mythology or somehow influenced their mythology creating this thing. So, I, I mean, I don't, Laura, do you have anything to add to that? Because I don't really know a ton about, I know Quetzalcoatl and I know all the connections between Quetzalcoatl and, um, you know, Kula Khan and all that kind of stuff, but I don't know, um, too much about the mythology behind that. No, I'm not super familiar with it. And I think that the problem is as well, there's um, there's a lot of confusion over the where the mythology first appears. So obviously you've got your, your symbolism, but in terms of texts, it's chroniclers that mostly wrote the texts and tried to translate kind of what they were seeing um, from amongst the pre-Columbian cultures. And I think that that's it's um, it, it's all got a bit confused. And that's one of the things that people argue against alternative history is that, okay, but um, are we really looking at what the, the, pe the pre-conquest people believed or are we looking at what chroniclers have kind of transplanted on top of them? Um, and obviously you can look at depictions and iconography yourself and make your own interpretations, but actually understanding or the ancient texts and, and the translations of the text can get a bit confusing, I think. Yeah, we'll mention there's a couple interesting connections but there. Did they not say that the whole thing was originally um, dedicated to the rain god, Klarlok? Yeah. And then just not too far away from that pyramid, 
there was another temp there was another much older monument that also was designated Klarlak or yeah. or Klarlak and then there was that large sat yeah, it's statue. hard to say it starts with a T right with and that that statue and its dating was before and the second site was built a lot a, a longer time and it's been dated for, oh, from a period much earlier than the Aztecs yeah so and, and I'm surprised he didn't go here I'll mention this and I don't want to get too much into this because again this is something we talk about regularly but I want to stay on topic but um, you know we have had uh, Tom Lane on who's um, He's an author, but he talks a lot about Quetzalcoatl. He's done sacred mushroom rituals with Maria Sabina, uh, who is the famous famous uh, mushroom sabia um, from Mexico. Um, and his book talks about how Quetzalcoatl is this entity that you experience within this psychedelic experience. And we know for a fact um, there's mushroom codices from Mesoamerica. I think it's the Vienna Codex and something else. Um, but there is these images associated with these gods and these rituals. Um, and again, there's interesting connections. So like, uh, Quetzalcoatl, I think is the same God as Contiki, um, and Contiki Viracocha and then Viracocha. Viracocha translates to foam of the sea. And oddly enough, uh, Aphrodite also, um, you know means foam of the sea so take that for what you will uh i thought that was that's an interesting connection i don't you know this idea that there's just some bearded guy it sounds like jesus just going to all sorts of different uh continents and helping civilize civilized people so but that's another thing that i did want to say sorry to carry on interrupting but i mean people aren't going absolutely ballistic because people i mean they're saying that these were pale gods so in my opinion, if they'd been a younger dryers and they'd been hiding out somewhere like during Kuyu, right? No matter how black your skin is, you're going to go, you're going to look sallow and you're going to look pale. So they, you know, he's not the only bearded person. The Nubians were bearded. Jesus was bearded and no one's, you know, going, oh my God, you know, the people aren't going, why have you made Jesus white when we all know that Jesus was not white, he was black or an Arab. Yeah. So, I mean, again, that's one, I don't, you know, I, I, I can look at the connections and different things. I don't, the whole, I have to, would look, I would have to look into where, cause I'm all about like origins and stuff like that. Where did that mythology come from? Has it been, um, altered by, you know, the Europeans that came in and changed, you know, I don't know. I'd have to go back and do exactly. I think, I think that's one of the arguments. I mean, I'm not super familiar with it, but that is one of the main arguments is the sort of post-colonial cultures misunderstood what they were coming across and transplanted their own explanations on top of it. And then of course, since then there have been um, further interpretations by not just academics, but alternative um, writers. Graham Hancock mostly references peer-reviewed journals and academic books, but sometimes he doesn't. Sometimes he quotes other alternative researchers, and that tends to open up a whole quagmire when it comes to referencing and understanding the origins of the story. He doesn't do it very often. That's why I've really enjoyed his books, because they're very thorough. Um, and I remember actually a long time ago, I don't know if it was in the early noughties, he had hired, I think, a PhD candidate to help him actually do primary 
data collection. And people seem to forget this. And he had also um, obviously dived at sites, visited sites, taken his own measurements. So he's done a lot of primary research. Um, but sometimes when he uses secondary research, it's not necessarily just um, academic sources that have been very thoroughly peer reviewed. So that might, that does kind of that 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 opens up a whole mess that can be quite difficult to trace sometimes. My other um, issue with Chula is obviously compared to many other pyramid and megalithic sites, it's quite modern. You know, it doesn't date back thousands and thousands of years. 500 BCE is the time of ancient Greece. So if we're going to say that there's a lost civilization and there was the survivors were going around the world helping to um, educate on building techniques and whatnot, the, the, we're talking some really long time periods um, between these different sites. So why did they start in Gobekli Tepe, then wait several thousand years, then go to Ireland, then wait a thousand years and go to Malta, then wait another 2,000 years and go to Mesoamerica? Unless, of course, the if argument would be that all the dating is wrong. And, <laughs> you know, and, and if we start to say the dating is wrong, it's, it's really tricky because, in my opinion, I mean... I've been looking into some of the papers on central Mediterranean radiocarbon dating and up to, uh, um, up to luminescence dating. And it's, I mean, they're talking thousands of samples, um, constantly being updated. They do get older dates when they do it, um, oftentimes. So it's, but they're not, not those sort of dates. So you can only really go on what the organic materials are telling you. But I think that you can go on myth because I mean, we all, when I grew up, the biggest myth that I believed was I believed in the Bible. And I believed that Adam and Eve were created out of a rib and that they had two children who must have had relations with their mother because their mother didn't have a sister. Do you know what I mean? So that, I mean, if you look, that's the, that's the first wild thing. We believe Noah's Ark. We believe all you know, the Noah myth is the same as the Gilgamesh myth, is the same as, I mean, all of these myths occurred round about the same time. So I think the core issue that Graham's trying to point out here is that somewhere it's, it wasn't a higher civilization or a more intelligent civilization. I mean, in, even now, for example, we've got seed banks at Kew Gardens. We are developing things so that if our species is completely wiped out, we can start again. Mm -hmm. So somewhere in time, um, you know, if it just, it makes an, it, there are too many, co, Robert Baval calls them coincidence pigeons. There are too many coincidences where they all talk about serpents. Um, the serpent iconography is big and there's a saying that I love the most and it's by Carl Jung and it says sometimes the hands can explain what the mind can't. And I think that by having a fire serpent at Cholula, serpents coming down at Gebekli Tepe, um, serpents being part of the, the mythology, that is something to say that, you know, is that an asteroid? Is that a comment? So, you know, myths are true. I mean, for example, in South Africa, the Sang people, who are one of the original humans, 
have no written language. Everything they do is um, done by word of mouth. The Dogen people in Africa too have only got word of mouth and they've also got some serious iconography. For example, some of their statues exactly match that sort of lizard on a pillar 42. So you do need to pay attention to a, to a lot of these myths because, um, you know, people people deny a lot a lot of a, a lot of civilizations ever happened. But we know that there is, for example, Nabta Playa, in the desert. They wanted to flood it, and they wanted to flood the area where I'm not sure if you've heard of the Sistine of the Desert, where they've got all those mural murals which specifically depict um, a, a black civilization. Um, and I want to sometimes ask Flint Devil or this Hooper dude, you know, if, they, if they're mad with Graham Hancock, what do they think about Boval and his black genesis? Um, so all of those people, they are still in the area. They don't know how old they are. They don't record birthdays or anything else like that. They record their events in life pictures and mural in and um, murals or rock art, which is how we've decoded stuff. So I think that to dismiss something as a myth when, like I said, we believe in something, and I'm sorry to every, anyone that's about to celebrate the birth of baby Jesus, but if we believe in that book, then we have to believe every other myth known to man because I mean, the Bible says I'll that say we that, are all... Yeah, I was just going to say... Really, like, really, brothers and sisters. Um, hey, so brother, I, I agree with you, Sandy, and I don't. I think that there is truth in myth, and maybe even some myths... Um, have a lot more truth than others. Um, you know, I look at it like, think about the allegory of the cave um, for an example of a paradigm shift. Think about um, even Atlantis. So like I've come to the conclusion when we started this podcast, I thought Atlantis was a real place or civilization. And I'm not saying that it's not, but there's not evidence of anything anywhere um, except for Plato's writings, which were handed down from Solon, which he got from a, a Egyptian priest named Sankis in Sais, Egypt. Um, and it was passed down to Solon and then three generations to uh, Plato and uh, all that wonderful stuff. So we've talked about that many, many times on the podcast. However, I've come to the conclusion it doesn't even matter if Atlantis was, was real because it's the allegory for cataclysm and what can happen to us if we're not careful or we're not, you know, it might even happen anyways. The earth is volatile at times. And yeah, there's that, that's the same reason God sent the flood to Noah. Yeah. And so, in all these myths, it's because the people became too, too, uh, the people got too full of themselves essentially. Well, complacent. And, <laughs> when's the next one coming? Because <laughs> well, uh, now everyone's <laughs> really full of themselves. Um, oh my I God. I don't think that that Atlantis is a place. I mean, if there were, the one thing that I have picked up in all of these, um, and I asked Graham about it, is that you you know the mound, that, the little the tail at uh, Serpent Mound, which is a nautilus. That nautilus is at Newgrange. It's at I mean, it's in Mexico. It's in France. It's 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 literally absolutely everywhere. Are you talking about the spirals? I, the yeah the little spirals yeah so you know how everyone in the world knows it, it, what it's what led scranton says everyone knows like they're when i got on my phone too we're gonna get to that in a second yeah they're, they're on malta so iconography is important because it's almost didactic and i think that um that nautilus is the same shape as as atlantis is supposed to be if you read a book by geo by giordano bruno um, giordano bruno 
that that is what they use as a as a memory map or a mind map. Um, it's also a similar structure to something like the Mayan calendar. Well, I was going to say so that think- there, there's that exact things. I think Chaco Canyon site. Um, it's called like the Sun Dagger or Sun Spear thing, and that's how they were able to track um, the you know um, solstices and things like that. So I think that that's an astronomical. Um, thing happening, either a uh, depiction or maybe them charting the stars or possibly, you know, you mentioned Newgrange. Did you, you know, at the solstice, the sun shoots through that shaft all the way down yeah. that one long hallway. So obviously there's a lot of knowledge there and I'm not debating anything you're saying. I'm, I'm just merely pointing out that like, I, I think some of these things don't matter whether they're real or not, because you can use them as knowledge, I guess is my point. But I don't want to get too hung up on that because I do want to get to uh, episode three here. We got to keep it moving along here if we're going to make this whole thing in two hours. Um, we're already past hour one. Um, episode number three. What's the name it of could it? Could be much further along if someone hadn't been late. Oh, yeah, it's my ouch. We were supposed to, no. We were supposed to do. We were supposed to do this earlier, and because we're all on different. I got uh, the time mixed up. I mean, it's my fault. Um, we were here, serious Laura. rising is the third one <laughs> serious rising all right um so this one we've got a ringer here which is laura she is the megalith hunter Her just because chan- i live there <laughs> she lives there but she's also very knowledgeable why don't you give us a little bit of your background too before we get started on this like you know well um i've always been into ancient history um malta i it was always on my bucket list to see the temples here so I came on holiday and to look at them and I met my husband and then I moved here. So my husband's Maltese. Um, and although I've worked in corporate jobs, business, basically my whole adult life, I did go back to university while I was here to do um, what at the University of Malta to do a master's degree in Mediterranean studies. It doesn't make me a historian or an archaeologist, it makes me a Mediterraneanist. But um, it does incorporate a little bit of history, a lot of anthropology, actually, as well. And that was more because I wanted to follow my passions, but I just I'm interested in so many things. I wasn't really sure what to study. So that that's what I did. I did Mediterranean studies, but I would say my focus was more on anthropology than anything else. But I do have quite a lot of um, knowledge from that qualification and from the research skills it gave me on Mediterranean history, because now I'm always looking for the latest peer-reviewed articles on anything to do with radiocarbon dating, megalithic sites, uh, Neolithic um, pottery, stuff like that. So I guess Central Mediterranean has become something that I've become relatively knowledgeable about, but I, in general, like the mysteries of the ancient past that exist globally. Awesome. Well, so this episode's pretty much the first part of it, or most of it's about Malta. Um, we have done a couple episodes with Laura in the past on Malta with slides and slideshows and things like that. So go check that out. Please subscribe to her channel, Megalith Hunter. It's she does amazing short videos on this stuff. Um, and yeah, uh, can, I, so, can I ask you two questions, Laura? Because. Mm. I don't want to argue about this too much because you know, I haven't been to Malta yet. And also, you know, a lot more than I do. What do you think about the Neanderthal teeth? And what do you think about that 
oxidized bill that was rubbed off the walls. And the, so I've done videos do on, on those. <laughs> yes, <Yeah>, Sandy. <laughs> so I did... Didn't you watch those videos, Sandy? Um, so the Neanderthal tooth thing, it's, I, it's I just read Twitter all the time. Okay, good. Um, now the Neanderthal tooth, um, controversy, I did detail it on my video, um, the back and forth that there has been about it. It's more than one, um, Turodont molar that was found and it's, it's tricky because Turodontism exists in Homo sapiens sapiens as well. So it doesn't necessarily have to be Neanderthal and mean that Neanderthals were on Malta like 50,000 years ago. Um, it's also a little bit confusing because they were found not in the cultural layer, but in the deer layer of the cave. And that's why another reason. So, sorry, there's just so much what, in this particular is, topic. That's why I did a whole video on it. Wouldn't that make sense, though? Because if the animals were migrating from a warmer climate, from, from Italy or Sicily, and they were hunter-gatherers or Neanderthals, wouldn't they have followed them there and that those bones would have been theirs? Yeah, so like the, the issue that I have... Stuff. The issue I have with it... Okay, turodont molars don't necessarily... It doesn't necessarily make them Neanderthal. However, if you look at the, um, the, the photographs of them, they are a little bit more unusual than a Homo sapiens sapiens turodont molar. So there are people on both sides. Some say that they did belong to Neanderthals. Other people say they didn't. Obviously, there's um, a certain specialism that analyzes this. I can't remember the exact name of it. So, okay, that's there's, there's two arguments there from the experts. But the, the fact that they say that it was found in the deer layer is a bit strange because the deer layer is actually only 10,000 years um old i think or 10,000 bc something like that so basically it's the last of the ice age fauna mm -hmm. so you had hippopotami 150,000 years ago then you had deer 10,000 years ago that's still not even old enough to be a neanderthal tooth if it was in that layer right because that would need to be much older than that um so it looks like it probably just they, they, these teeth fell from the cultural layer because when the cave was excavated, it wasn't um, the, the best time for archaeology. So obviously, there wasn't these things were not um, excavations were not conducted so scientifically, and things did fall into different layers sometimes, or mistakes were made. So if it had been found at an even deeper layer, then well, I would say it's well, a lot more convincing. Well, let me ask you convincing. this: Couldn't it have been a Homo sapiens sapien tooth from that ten thousand mark though? Then too. No, because Homo sapiens well, were way before then, weren't they? No, no, no. What I'm saying is, no, if she's no, saying that it was found in, if, if she was saying that it was found in the deer lair, um, couldn't it have been uh, a human from that time period then? Like, why does? Because you're saying, let me get this straight. You're saying that this this thing that the, we're saying that it's a Neanderthal tooth can also be found in human or Homo sapiens sapiens. So what I'm saying is, if it's found in that layer. Couldn't it have been a human from that time period in that layer or no? Yeah, uh, rather than the... a mistake being made or something. Yeah. It could. Which actually um, would, but... would back up more of his point because that's 10,000 years ago. That's roughly yeah. closer to what he's talking about. The, see, the, the, the person that wrote the book about the alignments with Sirius, 
right? Oh, Eleni Ridvik. Ridvik. I'm not sure how yeah. to pronounce her name. Yeah. Um, I read her book last year. So she had also said in that book that there's a big cover up, um, or in an article she wrote, that the archaeologists here want to hide the fact that Homo sapiens sapiens came here earlier or those earlier cultures here. And the fact that Neanderthals had also been here just, you know, adds to it, whatever. I, I find it a bit silly because why would the archaeologists want to hide that? They are very aware of the fact that there are Paleolithic and Mesolithic sites in Sicily and that the fauna came on the land bridge during the last ice age from Sicily to Malta. They think there should be sites where humans, human um, remains should be found, there should be fossils here, but they haven't found any. They haven't found any flint or arrowheads dating to that period. That's just the way it is. No one, I, I have no, I can't understand why they would want to hide that. Now, if, yeah, if this just did turn out, out I don't to get be the cover something. Up. I don't get the cover up either. Like who, would, who wouldn't but, want but, but the, the recognition? Guy, well, hold on a second. You see, yeah. who wouldn't want the recognition right. of, hey, I found this amazing discovery that pushes everything way back. Like if you're a scientist, that's what yeah. you are looking for. There's that recognition. So I agree with that. I don't like that argument that they're trying to hide. They always or, write it. If you actually yeah. read the archaeology papers um, that the local archaeologists have written, they've said it's strange, you know, and I will put, and I'll, let, come here. I'll let Sandy jump to her point, but just one more thing too. It, I find it plausible that why couldn't it, maybe because of the layer thing, it's wrong, but why couldn't, Neanderthals. We know that Neanderthals were in Europe. Why couldn't it be a Neanderthal tooth? Especially since there was land bridges and a lot more land connecting places in the past. I, I would just make that point. But you're saying that the layer thing doesn't add up, which I understand. Sandy, I'm sorry. Well, Go ahead. that's just something I noticed. But in either which way, the evidence is um, there's evidence for both sides of the story, and nobody's really super angry about it, as far as I can tell. The argument has and has continued for quite a while, but now there's some controversy over proper testing not being done. But then I also, once again, don't see why anybody would stop the testing or turn it into this big drama. Um, maybe just because there isn't enough evidence to go to that next step. Um, that's that's maybe it. It's it's tricky because it even like the whole thing of people coming here during the last ice age hinges on these three Torodont molars, but nothing else. It's a bit, you know, in, in Sicily, there's loads of evidence of Ice Age civilization. Uh, well, not civilization, but, think, but you know I what think, I mean. I think um, for, for me, it's just every time I think about that and why would they bury the evidence, I go back to that guy on the paleo lecture saying it's, it's the fact that, I mean, people's identities are built on this. The Maltese, you know, the Maltese are proud of those temples. That's their culture. There's a Maltese culture. So for people to go and even admit one of these things now is true. Any one of these places where, where they are all tied together by a myth or by astronomical alignments, and namely um, Sirius, which is, which is key because it, um, Sirius forms part of the Osiris thing, which is, which, and Osiris, which I'll talk about just now, is, goes back to Zeptepi. There's, there's something similar in, you know, there's something even similar about the way that, look at Gian, the way that Giantia is built. And the way that, um, say, Gobekli Tepe looks when they when they do a reconstruction of it. So I, th I, th I think the fact that the myth is there and that there's a chronology along that procession period ties it all in together. I mean, I'm interested about the oxidized bull, a bull and everything else like that. But by the ah, same yeah, the oxidized bull. That's yeah. 
Um, I think Graham Hancock had written about it in a book. I actually went back and looked at this book written in the 1970s called the, uh, I think it was the Neolithic Art of Malta and it was written by an archeologist at the time, an expert. And he said it was pretty strange because they had definitely seen this bull in the hypogeum. And then it seems to have just been kind of scrubbed off. However, he did, now I'm trying to remember because I've done a video on this, but um, I think he said something like, it did appear to be over the top of, of something that would make you think it was more of a modern creation. But then I don't see why anyone would just go down to the hypogeum and start painting. So since I, there's a reference. Because no, no one would go into the Lasalle caves or into Blombo's cave and and scrub off something like that. It just it just seems. Yeah. Well, I was going to say that you mentioned um, uh, Lachaux caves in uh, in France. And there's that great Warner Herzog documentary, Cave of Dreams. Yeah. Um, and, and mm -hmm. they talk about the deposits and the layering and how they know the exact dating because of the calcifications on the outside and things like that. So that one is, is crazy. If, if anybody hasn't seen the documentary, I highly recommend it because they're like super protective of this cave. Only a certain amount of people are, are allowed in at the same time. The oxygen's low yeah. because of where it is. It's so stuff like that, you know, we find things like that super preserved. And when we do, we try and protect it. But yeah, I mean, I don't know enough about the, you know, the geology aspect of this to say one way or the other, but. So even with yeah, that was just like a remark that... this guy had made. Sorry. Even even with Sirius and all the things, I mean, the thing that fascinates me the most and is also the Cartwrights, because that also lends credence. Is so wh where do they go? Can we? I want to go through but a just... little bit. Of... Hold on, I want to I want to organize this though a little bit before we keep going forward. Mm -hmm. We will get to the cart tracks. I do have everything kind of in chronological order a little bit. Um, so Malta, I will pull up. I think I only have one picture, and I will pull this up of Malta. Um, Does that not look like the Assyrian to you? Yeah, I actually those little um, those little divots are very interesting to me. Um, so. He thinks that the archaeologists are wrong, which we've mentioned many times. He mentions it in every episode. Um, so this is roughly 7,900, or Gigantia is roughly 7,900 uh, years old. Is that correct, Laura? Or I'm sorry, 5,600 5, years ago Gigantia was built. Yeah, that's right. 7,900 years ago is when the people came from Italy, supposedly. That's what I was getting at. Yeah. Um, and then... Um, so can you give us a little bit of uh, a take on why you this episode is brought to you by paramount plus get in loser mean girls is now streaming on paramount plus join katie heron as she meets the plastics and tina fey's new twist on the modern classic get ready for more of the rumors backstabbing and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises rated pg-13 wear pink and head to paramountplus.com to try it free Hello? Yeah, can, Hello. You hear me? can you hear me? Uh, now I can hear you. Oh, okay, sorry. sorry. I, don't, I don't know. I was cutting out for a minute. Uh, so can you, Laura, can you give us an explanation of like why you think that the dating is 
correct or somewhat correct or do you have a take on that based on because obviously he's trying to suggest that it's a lot older than um, well yeah i mean there's been many excavations um over the years including quite recent ones and i mean hundreds of carbon dated sa uh, samples have been taken for carbon dating recent the most recent excavations did push the date back a little bit now it's being um, around 6,000 BCE, people first came to Malta. Um, that's the kind of the date that's been thrown around. Um, but that's, I mean, that's the only evidence that's been found, okay? That's, and I mean, what can you do without that? So, and that, what they didn't say in the ancient apocalypse, they said, okay, so everybody arrived around 6,000 years ago from Sicily and then they waited a few thousand years and then they started building the temples. That's not strictly speaking how, how it happened according to the evidence. The early farmers came here, they built small villages, they farmed and then they left. And there was a thousand years when the island was empty or the population was so low that it's barely discernible in the archaeological record. And then a new wave of settlers came probably also from Sicily based on their pottery. And they were here for a couple of hundred years and then they started building the temples. And even local archeologists say, at least one archeologist has said um, recently in a, in a paper or a book that yes, the, the culture just kind of appeared fully formed and you don't see much of a buildup to it and that is a mystery no one's saying it's not a mystery because the art was fully formed the sculptures were fully formed the architectural techniques were fully formed obviously some of the temples are more primitive in structure than others but still they're pretty sophisticated for uh neolithic farmers that you think you imagine were more it would be more invested in survival okay so that's as but as far as the evidence goes and we're talking pottery and radiocarbon dated organic samples, um, nothing goes back further than 4,000 BCE. Okay. Sorry, and... oh my gosh, I'm being dumb. Sorry, 6,000 BCE, no, you're, so 8,000 years ago. And you're definitely not dumb, yeah. so let's keep that talk out of here. Um, <laughs> but, so, but, then, so... but then you got a Hagar, is it Hagar Kim? Yeah, yeah it's Hajar Im as Laura reprimanded me the first episode we did <laughs> don't i mean look my maltese is terrible but uh, yeah it's hashaim basically but with my strong british accent so, so they so they so graham's using hajaim as as having been built at that time based on sirius so they're saying that um it they go back much further because um, their axes are oriented towards Sirius. And that basically each temple, so one temple was built um, with its um, axis focused on the azimuth of Sirius. Then because of procession of the equinoxes, its axis needed to be changed. So then they just built another temple with a slightly different axis and then another temple. And basically, okay, there's remains of, I think 60 temples been found or referenced in history Obviously, many have been destroyed or never actually found. But if 60 have been mentioned since the 1800s, 
then potentially there were more than 100. So the argument is that all the missing ones fill the gaps. Um, if you look at how Sirius um, needed to be tracked according to the procession of the equinoxes over a long period of time. So they're filling in a lot of gaps here and assuming a lot because most of the temples don't exist anymore. So what is left, also the, some of the ones that are left, we don't even know what their orientation originally was because there's just a few blocks remaining. Yeah. So, uh, so, so in the, I was the... going to ask you about that because I did watch your episode the other day as part of my research um, where, where you said that mm -hmm. a lot of them have been lost and that, you, and that a lot of them are no longer accessible or they are on private land. So it's, it's impossible to tell. Mm, it's pretty impossible. I, it, it, it has to assume a lot. However, one interesting aspect of the serious theory is that some apparently some academics did also come across this idea before Lenny Redick. She mentions them and they dismissed it themselves because the, they didn't have the radiocarbon dates to match. Okay, so, so that's a little bit that's that's interesting. So um, in Gigantia, they mentioned the older <laughs> chambers that are connected. There's the altars with the bones. We've talked about all this stuff on the episodes you did with us too. Yeah, the slideshow yeah. episode. And what, do you, and what do you think about the snake? Gigantia. I, oh, sorry, Simon, dude. Um, dude. So, um, yeah. So again, he Graham Hancock thinks thinks it's older. He um, supposedly he says I think he says supposedly or something like that. Farmers built it. You know, that's his thing. He's pointing to is how could farmers have built this kind of a thing? Um, and we'll get to that same kind of a concept for Gobekli Tepe. But uh, he mentions some sort of myth in somebody named Sansana, a giantess had intercourse with a man of the land and had a hybrid and built the temple in one night. So have you heard that? Yeah. Uh, okay. Yeah, it's interesting yeah. though, because there's no cultural continuity here. So, um, so you have the fifth millennium hiatus. There was this gap between the farmers and the megalith builders, but they were, that was not the only hiatus. There was a hiatus between the megalith builders and the bronze age. And there have been several other documented periods since then in, during the historic um, times where it appears that the island was empty. So these myths can't be that old. It's simply not possible because there's been no cultural continuity on the islands. Okay. Um, what you about... see what I mean? I think yeah. they date back probably to the 1700s when people were first starting to get interested in, in these um, megaliths that were sticking out from the soil. Okay, so um, we mention, and so he mentions like floods, revealed bones. Uh, Gar is it Gar Dalam or Dalam? Or Dalam. That's the cave where the um, Turidont yeah. molars were found. So yeah, and that's when they mentioned in 1917, excavators found the supposed Neanderthal teeth in a stalagmite uh, uh, that date to roughly 11,600 years ago. Um, and you mentioned in 1952, supposedly the test results were hidden. Dun, dun, dun. Um, <laughs> and then new results from credible researchers confirmed that they were Neanderthal teeth, uh, is what he mentions. Okay, so we got through that. We already discussed that. Now I want to get to the cart ruts, which, man, uh, oh, sorry, um, Sandy brought up. Uh, so the cart ruts, you've done videos on this, uh, Laura. So you are 
so many videos on the carrots. Very many. And it, they are a mystery and they're found in other places too. So why don't you give us just a little bit of a background on the carrots and then I know um, Sandy will have something to say about that. <laughs> yeah, so the carrots are parallel tracks cut into the bedrock. And they all have approximately the same gauge. Um, but they, they, they do vary a little bit by a few centimeters here and there, or a few inches, sorry, for the American audience. But what's um, interesting about them is nobody knows which particular culture uh, created them. And they're also, it's also not clear if they were purposefully carved or if they were worn into the bedrock by some sort of a vehicle. And it's very difficult to decide to determine what their function was because as soon as you come up with one idea and say it looks like it was for a cart or a sled, then you find evidence that doesn't really support that, like a change in gauge that would make the axis very difficult or extremely deep cart ruts or cart ruts um, going around a corner. Many of them are in sets, much more than you think. They're not single tracks. You get many that are right next to each other, cross each other, like a crazy train station or a switching um, switching rails, which is why the most famous ones are called Clapham Junction. So they're, they're really quite the mystery. And people always write to me straight after I've done a video and say, oh, but they must be... Um, they must be for this or they must be for that. And I'm like, go back and watch the video because I've, I've explained why it can't be that. It can't be irrigation. It can't be vehicles. It, it's really tricky. Nobody can come up with um, a, a solution to this. And many experts have tried and experimental archaeologists have tried. So, yeah. And, and there's just, I mean, hundreds, if not thousands on Malta. Um, and then very similar ones are found in other countries. And in those countries, they also have mysterious origins and functions. So it's, it's just a, such a crazy subject, that one. Yeah, so... Do you, do you not think that if... Say now, okay, because obviously there, 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 there was a lot of flooding and a lot of... And Malta would have been... It wouldn't have just been the archipelago that it is now. Mm-hmm. I mean, and I know that you've discussed this before, but the thing that makes the most sense to me is that, I mean, maybe they were using it to drag rocks up from cities that are now under the sea and that marine archaeologists are not interested in finding. Potentially. Because, you know, it, it's, because it's, it's, that's an interesting thought, like, Sandy. I mean, that, that's in, like, say the sea levels were a lot lower. There could have been stuff and they realized they were ri rising. So let's get our let's pack up our shit and go up, uphill, you know, or something. I mean, the, only, the only thing remotely similar that I've seen, because I, I haven't seen any of the other ones, is that they look so similar to to the ruts at Pompeii. Mm -hmm. They I, do. I mean, but the ruts at Pompeii, it's very clear that they were worn by a vehicle. Um, oh, yeah. these ones it's not so I mean if they were I mean because those megaliths I mean some of them are gigantic I mean some of these megaliths and, and, and the tea structures in the Maltese temples are, are good they're big um, and if they yeah, were but none of these really... none of the roots actually lead up to any of the Neolithic sites though that's the other strange thing yeah I mean, but they I, have I mean, to I'm... be it's as old as the Bronze Age because of um, because Punic tombs were cut into the cart ruts. So they have to be pre-Punic. 
So they have to be okay, bronze so age some, or older. Some of the cart ruts have have tombs off of them. Yeah, like uh, they were just re the areas were just cut later on when Punic okay. tombs were being dug. They didn't care about them. Um, they didn't say, "Oh well, these are a mystery. Let's preserve them for the future." Because I mean, in, they, they, the they yeah, about one kilometer and twenty meters deep. Yeah, you know. Listen, so maybe, this is the maybe, you, know, you know how they did the. Sorry to interrupt, but you know how they did that sonar thing at Bimini. It would yes. be interesting if they could run that sonar boat around the cart ruts in Malta to get a bit mm -hmm. more information. Yeah, I mean that's what they—that's the kind of stuff they should be doing for sure. And I think, and I think that's why Graham's but, angry because he's saying, "Listen, I'm, I'm, I'm not, I'm not a scientist. Here are the clues. Go and investigate it." Yeah, the, these cart ruts, honestly, they for me are probably the biggest mystery. I think that. Uh, if I am going to say there's something weird going on in the Ice Age, then I'm going to say that's the evidence for it. I mean, even if you look at the people keep saying, though, oh, but there's this one that goes into the water. Oh, even Graham was stood at it, I think, in the in the in the show. The one that goes into the water, it's a very shallow bay and it could be much more recent seismic activity that caused the water to rise there. Um, also, even in valleys, you find the cart ruts. Well, at least in, I've been to one valley where I found cart ruts. And the valleys, remember, during the last ice age, Malta was joined to Sicily. It was, you know, hundreds of times bigger than it is now. The, where we live now would have just been a mountaintop, a peak. And the valleys that cut through Malta are enormous because they were carved out during the wetter climate during the last ice age, supposedly. So... The, the, there would have been these massive rivers gushing through Malta and leading all the way up to Sicily, I guess. Um, and these um, and these obviously were very full of fauna, um, hippopotami, elephants. It's all, all these fossils have been found. But what I find really interesting is when you think about it like that, the carrots shouldn't really be found in the valleys if they were Ice Age. Because why would, if they... In the Ice Age, those valleys would have been completely flooded. They would have had massive rivers running through them. So there's a couple of arguments for them not being Ice Age. And once again, that kind of irritated me in Ancient Apocalypse because it's it's just such a that it's such a typical one. They've been saying it now for 30 years. Oh, there's this cart in St. George's Bay and it goes under the sea, therefore it must be Ice Age. No. It, there really isn't evidence for that. However, you know, I'm intrigued by the cart ruts and I do think they are a mystery, but I think I'm the only person to recognize the fact that they actually run through a valley and valleys were massive rivers during the last ice age. So they just simply can't be that old, but they, they are something interesting for sure. Well, do you, do you, do you know at the, at the end of the episode, uh, well, at the end thing where they had the, the, the scab land with, with Randall Carlson, yeah, we're going to talk. Be, we're going to talk about do that. So don't. don't... Scab, do you think there could be some kind of scablandy thing, Laura? Yeah, I wonder because um, the geologists say that the valleys here were carved out during the last ice age when the the climate was wetter. So we're talking rivers, which are now, by the way, all dry dry uh, riverbeds. I just walk, I hike through them. Um, I wonder if 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 Randall is right about his. Um, idea that the catastrophic flooding happened a lot faster than we think, then of course that would apply everywhere. And these may have been gorged out much quicker 
than just because of rainfall over thousands of years. Because that would make sense of the higgledy-piggledyness of them, kind of, wouldn't it? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I guess. I guess. Great All points. sorts of things. Um, I want to keep it, I mean, I keep they it, definitely seem man-made, though. I want to keep it moving here, though, because we do have – we've got – four or five more episodes uh, to get through and uh, yeah let's keep going <laughs> trying to keep it can i mean i can keep going longer obviously but i just don't want to ha- get hung up too much on some of these things um so we mentioned all that stuff one thing one more thing i want to talk about from this episode and we talked about uh the alignments so procession that's what he's correlating to this procession of the equinox which is one degree difference every 72 years uh in the night mm-hmm. sky so that's the shift that happens of the constellations um you know he talks to that uh woman uh arch- archaeo astronomer i believe um, they were talking about Sirius or the dog star being the brightest star and how they're aligned. And this would roughly date it to 9000 BC. Um, so um, in terms of wasn't there some sort of controversy of that, like she was either misquoted or some taken out of context? Not that, you know, it was done maliciously or anything like that, but oh, she, that's, felt, that's she felt she felt like she was, you know, misinterpreted or something. Yes, that that was Catherine Stroud, I think. Wasn't it? Yes. Yeah. The, she's an archaeologist um, for Heritage Malta. Okay. So what was the, do you guys have a little bit of background? I mean, you guys probably know more about that. I just saw like a headline or something like that. I didn't really understand how she was misinterpreted because she didn't really say much in it. So I didn't really, I didn't think there was anything that do you interesting. Think maybe she just regretted. I, I like, misinterpreted. She probably caught heat from her colleagues back on or the something. show and thought oh my god i need to put as much distance between this and myself as humanly yeah. possible yeah that's that's what i was career. just yeah, she I, didn't say anything controversial in it at all but i mean she really barely spoke but i think yeah maybe it was just um she didn't realize what sort of documentary it was yeah so that, <laughs> that's, afterwards. maybe so she I, didn't want to be maybe she didn't want to be part of graham's clan with a k well that's what um that was the one thing that um came to my mind which was that sh- some of these archaeologists might have regretted like in the moment they were probably fine with it and then they saw the backlash and the heat and they might be like yeah. we got to distance ourselves from this so that that would be the what i would have to say about that as well yeah. um, i mean, all right. I mean katja had done an article but there was also other archaeologists got interviewed about it and they were very diplomatic they weren't rude not in malta they were they, I mean, there was I, nothing crazy like what you get in the garden that, yeah i was just gonna say that's just a well that's just a, a uk or american thing to yeah. I tell you what, I love Graham to bits and pieces, but uh, but I've got to know Laura like a little bit now, and I've chatted with her. And the person that I want to discover the mysteries of Malta is Laura. I want yeah, yeah that's the one thing. That, <laughs> I, I never ever want Graham to find out about that. But the other, the the only other thing that I did find of of some interest was the Horus, the Eye of Horus mask, Horus, on on all the fishing boats. Yeah, there isn't um, a link with Egypt. That's actually, um, it's to do with um, a saint, Saint, uh, saint Lucy, I think. She lost her eyesight because a man attacked her historically. And then there's like this story. Sorry, I'm not really good with saint and Catholic history, but there was, it's to do with that. I don't think it's to do with Egypt. 
And so um, the symbol of St. Lucy, from what I understand, I'm thinking Lucy, maybe I mean a different one. But anyway, from this particular saint, her symbol is an eye and people use it for protection. And then, of course, we also have the ancient evil eye symbolism is very strong here, as it is in many countries with um, an Arabic past. Um, but no, there's no there's no Egyptian connection. That was weird. I didn't really understand what we were talking about. Uh, is that that connects uh, to the core Egyptian story of um, Osiris and Isis. And Os Osiris was, a, 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 well, the, a, one of the Viracocha, a, a version of Viracocha, one of these bearded preachers. Um, mm -hmm. And he was supposed to have taken over a lawless Egypt and, and taught them um, agriculture and civilization and architecture and everything else like that. So that's no, where no, I don't believe it's a link. Yeah, I don't believe that either. I think Osiris. There's is, no link with ancient Egypt. I, and I think Osiris <laughs> is some sort of allegory for, um, kind of like Jesus, but it's like an allegory for an enlightened being, uh, kind of a thing that, um, I don't know. I mean, again, we can. That's a whole different episode. Um, and I, I believe that but, that but archetype that's is a lot more to do with Catholic. Right. Sorry, that's just the boats, the fishing boats. They're much more to do with Catholic history. And then there's also a strong undercurrent to do with the ancient evil eye belief, which is eventually became kind of merged with religion, but it's a kind of pagan belief. But obviously now you find it across um, well, you multiple You know about that. Didn't you say you wrote your, dis your dissertation or something? Uh, yeah, the... I did my master's um, dissertation on the continuation of the evil eye belief and the socioeconomic reasons for it in the modern world. So, um, yeah. yeah, so let's, let's... Thing. I, I, there's no ancient Egyptian connection as far as I know. And I mean, I really don't think it was such a weird throwaway comment that he made on that. I mean, actually, I don't see any, it wasn't yeah, grounded in anything. I don't see anything in the architecture that speaks to me as Egyptian or even pre dynastic. I, I, I Egyptian. Do. The picture that you, the picture that you're showing me now, if it didn't have all the little, like polka dots on it, it looks kind of like the Assyrian to me. Maybe a little, yeah. I can see what you're saying. And a, and a little bit like Gobekli. Yeah. Um, all right, well, let's keep this train moving on here. Uh, now we get to episode four, which is, Laura, I'm going to keep going back. I'm sorry. Yeah, let me just check because I opened up the names on my phone. <laughs> Oh, wait. I would use my phone, but it's currently pointed at my face. So, um, hmm. but oh, yes. Sorry, just a sec. No, um, no, no problem. I, episode Episode four is about Bimini Road and Bimini, um, the area of Bimini, uh, which is in the Bahamas. Oh, this is very annoying because um, I'm trying to see the list, and You're when fine. I only showed the first three, and then when I click through, it's. <laughs> Oh, okay. It's taking me all over the internet. Okay. Ghosts of a drowned world. <laughs> Ghosts of a drowned world. So that's about, again, Bimini, Bimini Islands in uh, the Bahamas. Um, yeah. Again, he starts by saying, you know, everyone calls him a pseudoscientist. Um, uh, he's just an author and a journalist. He's saying that this is what he's being called. Um, and again, he's, he introduces every episode with either that or... Um, you know, an attack on archaeology. And again, I get his frustration. He's definitely been, you know, like the whole hoops, calling him a racist and like all that stuff's terrible and it, it's BS. Um, and I just, I don't understand um, 
again, one time in the beginning in the first episode, I guess maybe the thought was, was the thought, do you think that like maybe not everybody's going to watch the first episode and maybe they'll jump around or something like that? I don't know. Maybe that was the thinking. You know, I mean, of... I also have to, it's, at the end of the day, Netflix paid for this, right? So, I mean, I think Netflix might have given him a brief to say, listen, you've got to, you've got to add some fire to this to bring the watchers in because this isn't, you know, the only history documentary on, on Netflix. There's things on Sakara. They've also, you know, they import things from, there's British TV programs. There's, there's loads of stuff. There's ancient aliens. There's loads of stuff. So there's, someone probably said, look, there's got to be a differentiator. Um, and I mean, rage engagement sells. That, that's a fact. The thing that gets the most clicks and the most interest is rage engagement. And Graham probably went like that, like a bull to a china shop and thought, you know, these archaeologists are absolute fuckheads. I'm going to attack mm-hmm. them. Yeah, I mean, I, like I said, I get it. I've seen all Sorry, the. I meant, no, no, you're, you're you're fine. I've I've seen. I just want to show you my duck. And, and there's uh, a lot. I think a lot of that might even come from John Anthony West and the Quackademics and um, all that stuff. And again, I get the frustration because it's like we have we're listening to these academics who just study you know one tiny aspect of one discipline of one site and then they're getting online and they're just dumping on people and this is going to be my criticism on archaeology really quick before we move on is that again aside from them not being great science communicators or creating great creative material to connect with people they also are online just like completely shutting people off, blocking people, muting people, um, not engaging with people, whether they think it's a silly concept or theory or not. They don't engage and they don't have pleasant conversations with people. And a lot of them are not pleasant at all. Um, And and the shit that they tweet and uh, send out is just not great. So we need better archaeology communicators, in my opinion. It can be really boring. Yeah. So, but I mean, look, I find it interesting, but I mean, I get what you're saying. Uh, but yeah, again, but I, I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm calling for better creative, you know, aspects to these things to communicate to the public, these ideas, um, so we can have better educated debates on these topics. Again, whether you believe, again, I love Graham Hancock and what he's done in a lot of different respects, but I, again, we're being fair here. We're going to critique something. This isn't believe one thing or believe the other thing or go all in or all, you know, whatever on, on either side, this is going piece by piece. This is what I think. And, and this is what I, so again, I don't need to hear that at the beginning of every episode, but maybe that's just because I'm familiar with his work. Again, I don't know what the thinking was behind that. Um, but okay. So we get to Bimini. Um, he's a big scuba diver. Um, somebody mentioned underworld at the beginning of the episode, which is his book mm-hmm. on all the, uh, archeological sites underwater. Uh, Bimini's found 60 miles off the coast of Miami in the Straits of Florida. Uh, we get Bimini road, which was found in 1968 when divers were looking for Atlantis. Um, and they found this, what appears to be a man-made structure or megalithic style blocks laid down. Um, archaeologists believe, though, the mainstream believes that these are naturally made roughly 3,000 years ago. Um, he talks with Dr. Uh, Haley, uh, who, who, who uses scanning with sonar, um, and 
some of the smaller stones under the slabs uh, were supposedly they found these like tiny stones under these like huge blocks that were supposedly keeping them level, which is kind of interesting. Like if it is naturally made, what w- what was the purpose for that or how did that get like that where there's it's almost like a uh, dolmen where there's like something holding these large uh, things up. So uh, I don't know. Do either of you have a take on this? I personally don't believe but even if Bimini Road is man-made i don't see any other significance other like what was it used for um it's just this bunch of blocks set in the line which don't have any correlation to anything else in that area so i'm open but i mean do either of you have a take i I don't know the the, the closest thing and i I think uh greg little posted a a picture and it almost looks like a u-shaped kind of harbor thing the interesting things about it are is um the similar they are all within sort of 15 feet long and seven feet wide so they're pretty uniform they're pretty uniformly laid that sonar showed them to be very equilateral so i mean that whole round shape i mean it it does look it does look man-made there's nothing like it's very difficult to say that the tide or that the sea i mean the seabed rocks and moves because there's tectonic movements underneath it all the time isn't there so at some point, some of those balls or some of those little pedestal feet are going to have fallen apart, but they haven't. Um, I mean, I, I'm I'm not sure. I, I think Bimini is probably one of the most least interesting places to me because he says it's not Atlantis. Uh, you know, yes, it, it, it yeah, probably I, is, Matt. That's, that man was made. one of there's, my... There's also rocks there that shouldn't, uh, or a type of rock that shouldn't belong there. But that's been explained away as... A, it was on a shipping route at some point and that a, a ship transporting granite from somewhere. Yes. Yeah, be- beach rock was, seems somewhat unlikely mm-hmm. for that area. I um, mean, it just, the only thing that really interested me about that episode, cause sorry to say, it's just not that it, it's, it's not one of the most interesting sites in the world. Is it was, no. was the, was the maps? And where they and yeah, so we'll we'll get to that. I just want to point out that if you're interested in in Bimini Road or whatever, we have done an episode with Dr. Gregory Little on it. I believe we discussed Edgar Casey, which that was part of his readings and prophecy was in the Edgar Casey papers. Uh, and Dr. Gregory Little took us through all that. Also, Dr. Gregory um, is a you know big scuba diver himself, so he's definitely dove off there a bunch and even shared some of his photos from. Um, his own adventures there. We've done a couple clips and a full episode with him. So if you're interested, um, you can take the time and go check those out. Um, you mentioned Sandy, um, this not being interesting. And I, I agree. I don't really see the, the thing that I found interesting was that shark effigy effigy. Is that, you know, oh, yeah. so is that natural or is, is that that one was interesting because it's like, it kind of does look like a shark, but could it be pareidolia that, that I don't know. Do you know when I see it, that does look like a shark effigy, and it would have—I mean—it's one of the things that the Bahamas or that or that area is known for is one of those one of those sharks. So if you're a sailor or a or a seaman, you're gonna you're gonna be familiar with those, and if your ship keels over, you, that's the, one of the things you're gonna be scared of. But I mean, I think I've mentioned this to you before: is that I see symbols in in so many things now because I carry on looking for them. Do you, do you know what I mean? I carry on ever since I watch Magical Egypt. I carry on th- seeing rams and flowers, and I have to stop myself from thinking, 
oh my goodness, this is definitely a symbol. Um, because things, you know, there are, there are many, I mean, for example, if you go back to the Sphinx, at some point in time, I do believe that the Sphinx is hundreds of thousands of years old and someone saw a rock and it looked like a lion. So there are many natural formations that, that somehow wind up looking like animals. So we can't say that every single effigy that comes along is, is definitely a, a, NASCAR kind, a, a NASCAR kind of formation because it, it does happen. I mean, there's things called Elephant Mountain where it looks exactly like an elephant. Yeah. But it, and, um, and it's just been weathered that way. So, and then he goes into the whole Atlantis, uh, talks about Plato, um, 9600 BC. We've, again, if you're interested in this stuff, we've done a million episodes on it. We've even talked with Randall Carlson um, two times about Atlantis. You can check out our episodes with Randall uh, and the link tree link below. Um, and yeah, we'll just keep moving on unless Laura, do you have anything interesting to add to this? Uh, topic? Um, yeah, I, I honestly just think it's natural formation. I just couldn't see this. Maybe I need to go there and dive there myself because I just couldn't see it. I've, and I know that there isn't really a, a geological explanation at this point and also to how the small stones got underneath, which is quite weird, but I just couldn't see it beyond a natural formation. And the stuff on the Piri Reis map, so I got my big book of maps out where I've got the Piri Reis map. And it really does look like South America, just a bit curved. Because if you're going to say that's Atlantis, why isn't the strait there, you know? That strait is about 2,000 miles, I think. So why why isn't that there? And also, if you want to say... Sorry? Is he saying that's Atlantis or green or, or Antarctica? Sorry, Antarctica. Yeah, he's saying it's Antarctica. Antarctica, yeah. So if he's saying that, but he, and not in, South his, America, in Fingerprints of the Gods, he does reference the... Antarctica as being Atlantis, just FYI. Yeah, sorry, that's just my brain, like, ooh. But I just can't, I can't see it. And also, if you do say, okay, this actually shows Antarctica in a thousands and thousands of years ago when whenever it wasn't covered in ice. Then surely at that time, with it being such a long time ago, the coast of um, South America that you can see um, and the Caribbean islands would have a completely different configuration because there's been so much change in, you know, there's been a lot of seismic activity and change in the land since then. So I feel that you can't have it one way and not the other way. See, I, so we've got the race maps and then we've got the Arontas Phineas maps. And one of the, mm. uh, so obviously they're saying that they've got 20 source maps and they date back to the Ptolemaic area, era mm. and that they've been missing. And we've obviously got the Alexandria library that was burned. And they were saying that, you know, this wouldn't have been something that Magellan had discovered or something that uh, Columbus had discovered and that uh, that they didn't have the navigational capacity for this kind of thing. At, um, and that also Perry Race, it wasn't Perry Race that wrote on the map that it was source map. It was someone that found the maps in Constantinople that, that wrote over them at some point. Maybe they were just trying to kick up some controversy. Yeah. But, but I, um, and also... There was another suggestion that Perry Race 
ran out of paper. So he just turned it around and he, and he did a doodle. But then they overlaid it with what the ice cap would have looked like in, those, in that time. And the coastline does match up. And I do think, I mean, if you go back to, I mean, navigation and astrology and astronomy has always been a thing. It has been a thing for since Anoptoplia, where which is the exact same. It's, a, it's the blueprint for Giza. Then we've got a very interesting little thing, which um, in the course of this research, I fell down the Antikythera um, rabbit hole. And we've got a, a little device like that that's 2,000 years old. And I, I mean, the mechanics of that are, are absolutely genius. So 2,000 years ago, we had serious navigators. And they were, I mean, it's if, if they did that 2,000 years ago, I mean, Robert, one of the, one of the, critiques that Robert Baval has got is that um, the Greeks are, are are credited with with having discovered the procession. But it wasn't them. It's clearly the it's clearly the Egyptians. So the Egyptians will say not to Playa, which which follows the procession exactly. Um, and the way that the stars would have moved uh, 9000 years ago. Um, and then 7,000 years later, the Greeks came up with an Antikythera. Well, hold on they a second. I, I think with the Greek thing, though, it's it's Hipparchus who discovered, he, oh, let's say he did discover procession. He's the one that recorded it and showed other people and say, hey, this is how you do this. So that's where we get that knowledge. It's not saying that the Egyptians didn't show other Greeks or the Egyptians didn't do it first. I think when history writes these things, it's saying, hey, this is the dude that wrote it down or this is the guy that preserved this idea or tradition. And again, not to say that it wasn't carried down from other generations. That's just how we know about it. So I just wanted to point that out. But what, so, if, so if we've got that kind of sophistication, because I watched a whole documentary of how they uncovered, and again, it was a lot of the symbology that they had to work out in the iconography, um, along with their little teeth on the gears. I mean, that's a highly sophisticated piece of machinery. And someone that that invented something like that, I mean, that kind of astronomical device could easily have, I mean, they must have had pre, they must have had some kind of knowledge to have even considered building that thing. Yeah. So it is entirely possible that there was a seafaring nation that did go out and no, draw absolutely. something like that. I mean, and you like, have the, like yeah, and you've got all sorts of cultures and, um, you know, the, you can talk about like the Minoans and the, you know, everybody that was traversing, um, you know. What about the sea people? I mean, what yeah, is the sea it, what people. Is, I mean, yeah. The, I mean, there's a, I, I want to keep this moving, Sandy, though, because if we, if we stop okay. too much on each one, we're never going to get through this on time. Okay. Um, I'm not to, not to cut you off. I'm just trying to keep this thing moving here and moderate this thing. Um, but yeah, so Bimini, I'm open to it being either way. I don't really care. I, I don't, even if it's man-made, uh, I don't know what the importance is because there's really no context for it given any other sites or um, artifacts found around in that specific area. But again, show me something and uh, you know I'll take a look at it. Moving on, episode number five, um, we get to Gobekli Tepe. And Laura, do you have the, t- the title of the episode? Um, yes. Okay. I saved it now. So, this one is Legacy of the Sages. 
Legacy of the Sages. Now we go, I do have images. We've done many episodes on Gobekli Tepe. Check out our Mysteries and Metaphysics episode I did on Gobekli Tepe and Easter Island. I'm with, going next year, guys. With, oh, nice. With a slideshow. Here we go. I'm pulling up here. We got some images. You see the predator um, T-pillar on the right there. The fox pillar on the left. Um, so what did you guys think about this episode? Any thoughts? Laura, let's start with you and then yeah. we'll get to Sandy. I honestly was a bit frustrated that that whole uh, Martin Sweatman was there talking about his pillar 43 um, theory in, oh, yeah. from Enclosure D. You know, no, but the thing is, I obviously read the paper when it came out years ago, and I also read the counter paper to it, the rejoinder from the archaeologists, which was, well, extremely good. And I also read um, a long blog written by an archaeologist about that as well. And uh, honestly, the counter arguments are brilliant. And... Uh, what I don't understand, because obviously it's an it's an amazing theory. I think it's 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 super. It's it's fascinating, and it was published in a peer-reviewed journal. Martin did a lot of work on it, but I don't. I just can't understand why there hasn't been any kind of um, response to all those counter arguments or any tweak to the original hypothesis. And that's what I'm saying, is when we just stood there on a documentary regurgitating an idea that was presented in 2017. We're five years on, there's been many counter arguments and they're not even mentioned. <laughs> like that to me is really irresponsible and that's obviously not gonna help the credibility of the alternative researchers. So that was my takeaway from that particular episode. Okay. Yeah, but Sandy, I go ahead. No, I don't know. I mean, uh, from what I can understand is that a lot of people were invited to give their opinions. I um, mean, in the same way Serpent Mount turned, turned Graham down, many people decided not to come on and not to give their counters um, because, of, because of the association with, uh, with pseudo-archaeology. But I mean, honestly, when you bring up this picture, um, I'll send it to you, Mike, because my, 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 my Twitter account is locked and it's going to stay locked. Um, that that little dragon thing is exactly the same as on a totem pole um, that I saw in the British Museum, and it's a, it, it, that almost exactly it's it's built on one of the Dogen settlements. And one of the theories that I did hear about Gobekli Tepe, because people were saying how could hunter gatherers have done this, and it it was obviously built over or in use for over a thousand years was that that is that is an extremely it's it's very advanced and people wouldn't just arrive there and start making sculptures like that um out of the blue so they were suggesting that it was originally done um in wood and they mastered their carvings in wood which makes sense if you i mean if you see it on on totem poles i, I mean, mean yeah I that, that's I technically i mean from what i've seen from the is it's known as the predator and they think that it might have been like a starving like lion because there was lions in that area at the time or it could have been a starving i've heard some people say it looks like an alligator but i don't see the snout being very reptilian um it looks like a cross between a gecko and a panther yeah, yeah it, it, I so it. I think that's that's what they go, yeah it's like a but it, that's what they go with is like a hungry panther or a hungry big cat kind of a thing 
It's a cougar then. <laughs> There's only one cougar in here, Sandy, and we know who that is. I, don't call Laura that. She's married, man. <laughs> no, we know it's you, Sandy. <laughs> um, so, all right, so here we go. Let's keep this thing moving. I'm going to pull up another image here. Um, here you get some of the the bird iconography, and it's important. It's important to point out Gobekli Tepe is only about five to ten percent excavated, and there's other sites nearby like Karahan Tepe, um, mm. and, and there's a few other ones that you know they still have to really excavate. So, um, but yeah, so tw it's twenty twenty six miles from the border of Syria. Um, it was discovered in ninety five by uh, Klaus Schmidt and his team. Um, you know, according to the current, you know, paradigm at the time, it shouldn't have even existed. Um, let's see here. They believe hunter gatherers built it, which that's the, the hot topic right there. Again, this is just what, you know, archaeologists say. Uh, I, I don't think that's the hot topic. I think the hot topic is, is that when, is that Graham's entire principle is, and, and the reason why he made, well, wrote Magicians of the Gods was because he thought that after he'd written fingerprints, there was nothing more for him to say to illustrate the fact that he believed that there had been a prior civilization and that some kind of cataclysm had happened. And um, everyone said to poo-pooed that and said that that's absolute nonsense. And out of the blue came Gebekli, which which forced archaeologists to change um, to change tack because now we have had got evidence of something that happened. Uh, well, uh, 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 I mean, this is a highly civilized, uh, well, highly technical site. And the, and the other well, interesting I mean, thing the, about the, it, To your point, though, like relief carving is hard. To carve away stone to create 3D images, that's hard. It's a lot harder than carving into stone. So, I mean, it just doesn't make sense that out of nowhere people would suddenly build massive megaliths like that with that kind of carving details. Um, so we don't know what's underneath, but what we do know is that, is that, I mean, for example, the pyramids, the, the, everyone agrees that the dating of the actual pyramids is right. And as the dynasty, you know, in the newer dynasties, pyramid building became more and more sloppy. So the, you know, the other pyramids are all collapsing. So if this follows the pattern of, um, work becoming more sloppy, how technical and what exactly is underneath that, what is in those other 20 chambers around there and around Karahan Tepe? And I believe that they've now found an older site. I've saw someone did a video on it. But yeah, I there is. It, it starts with like an S, I think. To say a, a K. Oh, yeah, that one. But there is another one that starts with an S. There are so many, and they're all, yeah. they're all like, I think they're finding each time they're like a hundred years older than the previous one and yeah. so on. But I will push back a little bit, Sandy, um, on what you were saying, only because things getting worse than, yeah, but there's also a progression up too. Like you look at the Pyramid of Maydoom, you look at, you know, then the um, the Bent Pyramid and then all the way to the Red Pyramid, Sneferu, you see his progression as a pyramid builder. And then you get to the apex, which would be the Great Pyramids and, uh, Hemiunu and all that kind of stuff. Um, so if you're going by what you're saying, then there should have been a gradual decline from the beginning, but it looks like maybe there was an up and down thing happening in my opinion. Um, 
Well, also in ancient Egypt, um, because it's we do have texts from that period. We we know that the, they had a lot of social and political upheaval, and the construction and um, techniques and the amount of effort that went into the projects does seem to correlate with the different periods of social and political upheaval that they were going through. So yeah. in ancient Egypt, it's not quite so strange that it would start good and then get a little bit worse. So, <laughs> But still, with Gobekli Tepe, once again, just like in Malta, just like with many of these ancient civilizations, they did appear without a, a, an evolutionary phase before them. But that's probably because the evolutionary phase was in a material that didn't, that wasn't, um, that, that, sorry, is decomposed since then, you know, like leather, wood, textile. Right. I will say, just to give a little bit more background, at Gobekli Tepe, there is four enclosures. Um, however, enclosure D is the oldest and most interesting. 2003 survey detected more than 20 other sites underground in the area. Um, you know, Graham thinks it's obviously a, a lost civilization. You have uh, Karahan Tepe right there. Um, you know, Turkish authorities are very protective of it. I know Andrew Collins has been kicked out of Turkey and Gobekli Tepe. I don't know if he's allowed <laughs> back there. Um, that had to do Yeah, but with once again, he wrote that um, ashes whole thing to angels. on the Cygnus. Well, yeah, but his that's he? not why. his they, they had a problem with his book, Ashes to Angels, about the Kurdish people and possibly being oh, earlier right. there, and it's a political... I, never... I have always loved Andrew Collins, and, I, and I've said to you many times that I like Andrew Collins, but I think he he's literally... He's gone a little bit mental with his Origins book and his new correlation with aliens and, and associating himself with, with Eric von Daniken and some really outlandish ideas. Um, he's also fe featured in Ancient Aliens, and I almost feel like he's left his authentic roots behind in to commercialize or pay or you know collect money off of absolute bullshit theories. I mean, his new book though doesn't really talk about aliens like ancient aliens. I mean, you're talking yeah, about or Origins of the God. No, I understand. I'm not a fan of Eric Van Donegan, but I am a fa fan of Dr. Gregory, and I do like you know. Andrew's like you mentioned previous work and stuff like that oh yeah um, I love Dr. so so I, actually I, that book I actually like that book when it comes to metaphysics and things like things we can't understand and things like that I actually really enjoyed that I liked it I think even better than Denise of an origins to be honest with you but that's just my opinion um and I understand your opinions as well I do not really love the Eric Van Donneken stuff but whatever I mean it's like you mentioned earlier I think it's the kind of um you know got people interested in, in the topic like, or whatever you know i think i mean look Greg, greg's pretty much a stable person but increasingly andrew is aligning himself with with like the super fringe okay well Which, you know. yeah but i mean in the in the 1980s didn't he run a paranormal magazine i mean he's always been very much into fringe i think yeah but then again when he wrote his idea about cygnus and the pillars at gobekli tepe um, it really was quite thorough and interesting. But once yeah, again, well, there was an incredibly detailed counter argument made against it very politely by an archaeologist that is very hard to ignore. So, you know, there's that. <laughs> okay, so then they go into the seven sages 
um, and the op Graham goes into the seven sages, the Opkalu myths, uh, Oannes, the fishermen, and and all that um, from here. Let me see if I can find. I think I actually might have some of these reliefs. Let me see if I can find them on here. I mean, the seven sages is another one of the is, is another one of the um, links between these myths because they you know they all many of them speak about the four cycles, um, which could be no, the solstices and the equinoxes. Um, you've got the Easter Island four uh -huh. sages. So you know, that's something. And another thing that interests me about the site is, oh. I mean, you get the, it's not just that little, there it's not go. just the cougar that, that's interesting. Um, it's the hands on that pillar that look, oh, I've, I've, I saw so, one of those. So, yeah, I saw you in front of, I saw your picture. I wanted to pull this up. And by the way, that's supposedly depicting the tree of life and them holding pine cones. I got a different take. I'm looking at a cannabis plant and some cannabis colas in some hands. Oh, you, you um, think that's Kush, don't you? Yeah, I think it's quite possibly cannabis. What, what's in the hands, Mike? What did a, you say is in the a hands? A cola, which is the top bud from a cannabis plant. Oh, okay. I didn't um, know that's what it was called. And uh, again, it could be a pine cone. Pine cone, obviously, pine cone uh, iconography is uh, prevalent. But I mean, you know, even other people I've talked to who are historians on this topic, uh, Chris Bennett, who wrote the book Libra 420, tends to kind of agree with that. And those bags were supposedly hemp bags. I mean, just the whole thing kind of makes sense to me. I'm not saying that that is the case. Yeah. That's just where I stand on it. Uh, but yeah, here we got another. Yeah, one. I could totally get behind that. That they're carrying drugs in their bags. And we know there, there's archaeological <laughs> there's archaeological evidence for um, the Assyrians, Akkadians, Sumerians all using cannabis and yeah. opium and you know many other um, substances. So I just wanted to throw that out there, and then you see that one Abkalu right there, and the Abkalu. Um, you know, there's a whole mythology behind them. You can check out uh, our episodes, Mysteries and Metaphysics. We've done some episodes on this. So, uh, but yeah, anything you want to add, Sandy, before we um, wrap this one up? Um, well, I think the handbags are also interesting because, you know, they've, they found South America. They found with the Olmecs, the Mesopotamia, the Vulture Stones, interesting. Um, the, the other thing, oh, you, you did an episode uh, and you mentioned owls. Um, oh, yeah. and that owls. made and that made, that made me think Laura about th that owls oh, represent yes. prosperity and fortune and I wondered if that if that owl I I just I don't know I just suspected some owl owl imagery there but it, but again um you know I think it's obviously the significance that the date was found um and that and and that it was deliberately buried and it's almost like they it, I mean, I don't, is it a message for us to find? I don't, I don't know, but there's serpent iconography and there's a number of things that match up with this entire procession flood myth story. It's, it's just. Uh, yeah. So, and, and to point out Dr. Sw uh, Martin Sweatman, we've had him on the podcast uh, a couple of years ago. Uh, he wrote the book prehistory decoded. Um, yeah, he's got some interesting archaeo you know, astronomy connections there. Um, it's definitely worth checking out if you like Gobekli Tepe. Um, Graham keeps going back to. I him see on this. his. Go ahead. I see his stuff honestly as a jumping-off point. I think he's onto something, but I don't think he's solved it. And I just really feel that 
if he's going to go on there, he should mention the counter arguments and the, and maybe tweak his ideas because okay. the counter arguments, I mean, I'm, obviously we're not going to go through it all today, but they're brilliant. They're brilliant. I can't say they're not. Yeah. So. so again, I mean, I, look, look, look at all sides of things. Is you've got serious, mm -hmm. and the other interesting thing is, is you, do you know of Malta? That well, that per, the the Ravik, her theory that they changed the direction of the temples to continue astronomically aligning with Sirius. That that yes. all those four cha chambers that they've looked at seem to do the same thing as what happened on Malta. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Oh, there's so something certainly very interesting going on. I think we are. I'm. I don't really like it when everybody talks about solstices and equinoxes. I just think it goes, if we're going to say there's some sort of sky earth cosmology, I'm going to say it goes way further than that and is probably, uh, you know, monitoring a number of different um, planetary and stellar movements. There could and be there, something really interesting going on. There's the main T pillar that everybody discusses, which is pillar 43, yeah. um, which supposedly depicts some sort of asteroid or comet um, scenario. You have the ancient handbags up there at the top three in a row. Um, again, you've got the scorpion. scorpion. And then uh, Sagittarius would have been in the sky, but it's right. not represented. But the way that the vulture's wings are shaped um, is, is the shape of the bow that Sagittarius would have been in. And then it's right. also at the bottom of this boat, it's got the serpents raining down. Right. And one thing I'll mention too, this is a pet peeve of mine. I hate when people um, who are against science in certain regards use science when it benefits them and does not use science when it does not benefit them. That's that's something <laughs> I, I used to do that. And that's something now it's a pet peeve of mine. Um, so it's like you have to balance that out and, and use context when you're going to do that kind of thing. Um, because I think it's important to point out that there's people spending their whole lives dedicated to this stuff that um, obviously not everybody has malintent or malicious you know intentions or, or things like that so i mean if we're going to criticize stuff and you know just let's be like honest and balanced about it and also if you're going to use if you're in the fringe and you're going to use science uh don't just use science when it benefits you use it to make all your conclusions um and also use your own intuition and if you're mainstream you know open up your mind a little bit more there's a lot more to our history, and we know everything's always evolving and changing. The ideas and paradigms are constantly shifting. That's one thing I like what Graham says is things keep getting older because they do, whether it be, you know, inhabit, you know, people inhabiting the Americas way before Clovis first or whatever the case may be. I think that's important to keep an open mind on both sides. And if you're going to debate people, know the mainstream if you're in the fringe. And if you're in the fringe, uh, know the mainstream. Or, you know, vice I mean, versa. I think just a last point. I mean, I think that when I look at this and they and they call this, uh, you know, the Rosetta Stone of, of its time, I think about things like the Temple of Karnak, where that is a message recorded in stone. And I um, and I think about the Edfu text, once again, that were recorded on a papyrus. And at some point in time, I, maybe it was thus prophecy, they, they realized we're going to have to put this into something that's absolutely indestructible. So it just it it just is interesting that the that, that the cataclysm that was described does fit in with with the narrative on this stone. I mean I I mean I'm probably the least qualified. I'm one of those people that you're talking about, Mike. That I that, that I see bits and bobs and and I form I form an opinion. But I but I but I wouldn't start a YouTube channel and start saying, listen, I've discovered this two years ago and. 
I'm going to yeah. pretend like I'm the world's And greatest. there's a lot of hypocrites out there. There's people taking advantage of this on both sides I've seen. Archaeologists and fringe people that are saying, oh, Graham is, you know, this and trying to call him out and stuff. Like, no, shut up. Sit down. You don't know what you're talking about. Um, so let's get to, I just want to wrap it up. So again, Gobekli Tepe is dated to roughly, um, you know, 10,000 or 11,600 years ago, um, roughly 9,600 BC, uh, at the end of the last ice age, it's primarily, (laughs) um, what we know is the first, you know, civilization or megalithic structure after the younger Dryas period. Um, and, uh, yeah, so we're going to keep moving on here. I, again, if you're interested, I've done plenty of episodes. Uh, So hold on a second. Uh, Martin Sweatman, again, his book, um, prehistory decoded, and then an actual archeologist that works at the site that posts a lot of stuff on Twitter. His name is Jens Norgren, I think. Um, so you can check that out if you want a balanced point of view on it. Um, and yeah, we've done many episodes on this, so check out any one of our previous episodes on Gobekli Tepe. So, anything else? Any you, you quickly add before we move on to the next episode? Very, very, very no. quickly. Um, in like to try and get a time scale of of what people's skills were, I looked at the Venus of Willendorf, which is uh, could be up to forty thousand years old. And interestingly, I mean, I didn't, I, I haven't done enough background checks on this, but one of the articles that, that, that I did read said that there were a number of tools and um, mechanisms used to make that, that archaeologists just didn't write about, because I thought if they did, they would have to change a number of other um, peer-reviewed papers, etc., because it would, it, it would, it would change the way that historians or archaeologists have recorded the way that things could possibly have built like you know for example it wouldn't have been diorite balls and it wouldn't have been copper and it wouldn't have been flint but they, so it just once again out of convenience they they just didn't write about it okay we have to start hurrying up because i actually am on a timeline here so um, okay. um yeah let me let me just handle this and then we'll get quick quick thoughts on the next three episodes i do want to spend time on the last one because there is um stuff on there but or do you guys want to just save the last three for another time and day that's up to you i can we can whiz through the last three episodes um or we can do the second part of this another day it's up to you we can do the rest of the three quickly okay all right, let's let's run through them really quickly then. Um, actually, let's do this. Uh, episode six is on Serpent Mound. Graham Hancock was actually prevented from filming at Serpent Mound uh, because of his views on things. Um, he did get some drone footage. Um, he has the, um, the his book out about you know America uh, before and all that kind of stuff. Uh, he mentions the White Sands footprints, which are dated to 22,000 years ago, and it is previous believed that Clovis' first paradigm was 15, I think, 16,000 years ago. So that pushes that way back. Uh, I don't want to spend too much time on this. Uh, in fact, let's just keep breezing through this. I have done a long slideshow episode with Dr. Gregory Little. He has written a book um, on the illustrate in illustrations of the. Um, uh, mounds throughout North America. So if you're interested in the North American sites, which are highly, highly interesting, uh, check out our episodes with Dr. Gregory Little. Um, and yeah, the Serpent Mound, I don't think there's any question that there is some sort of alignments to the summer solstice. 
um, and astronomical alignments um, in terms of the dating. I don't know. Do you guys have anything quick you want to add to that episode on the Native American stuff before we keep this moving? Yeah. Um, obviously that they are very quickly that the poverty point is just has been disregarded. The wood hinges have been disregarded. Um, and also that um, with having built something as absolutely complex as as that serpent that has the and it's with its bends um, and its jaws opening to the equinox. It's just interesting that when they do that um, wind the skies back thing, that the time that the serpent's mouth would have properly uh, swallowed the sun was in, tw- in 11,600. And it's not something that you can see to the naked eye. So again, I mean, it's serpents, it's asteroid, it's following the serpent theme. And it's just interesting that it does fall along that procession of time. Okay. Thank you. And do you have anything to add? Laura? Uh, No, I don't really have anything extra. I think it's an amazing site, these effigy mounds. Um, And I think that people aren't really aware of how many mounds and effigy mounds there actually are in North America. So there's definitely something was interesting going on there. Like I've been looking into the poverty point one as well. It's just, it's fascinating. I don't really have an explanation for it. Definitely they had astronomical knowledge as all these ancient civilizations appear to have had. So yeah, that's it. Okay. I watched the episode on that. It was good. And again, just check out these episodes. There's a lot of good information on there and previous episodes we've done on this kind of stuff. Um, All right. We're going to get to episode seven. Uh, where they're talking about underground caves, Darren Kuyu, uh, Cappadocia. Uh, here I have an image. Um, this is called their their fairy chimneys, I believe, is what they're called in the Cappadocia region of Turkey. And then you have these other sites, these underground cave sites of Darren Kuyu, uh, which supposedly could support 30,000 people. Um, or is it 30,000 people, I believe? Yeah, something like that. Um, and they're huge. Um, they're it's actually like 240 miles from Gobekli Tepe. It's carved into the volcanic tuff, which we've mentioned from the Easter Island. You, you know, if you've watched our Easter Island episodes, you know about volcanic tuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, in 1963, some developers found a hole. Um, and then, you know, there's just all these tunnels and things. There's 1500 or 15,000 air vents, 50 vertical shafts, 20, oh, 20,000 people could live down there. Um, and yeah, there's different, you know, mythologies and Yima and Navara from, uh, Zoroastrianism. And there's a lot of symbolism and, and different things going on there. So is there anything you want to add to, uh, this episode about Darren Kuyu? Cause it is very interesting The Darren, you know, he speculates, or I guess mainstream thinks that they're used for battle and war, but then he debates that and says that they're obviously to go hide from a, ca- a cataclysm. So. Well, oh, yeah, I think something I'm... very weird was going on. Sorry. All right, sorry, go, Laura, you go first, and then Sandy, and then, like, like I said, let's keep it concise and sweet. Yeah, I think something very interesting was going on here. I don't, I mean, I'm not really of the mainstream viewpoint on this one. There's just, these. there's not just one of these sites. There are loads of them. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just don't, they wouldn't have been, like Graham says, they wouldn't have been very practical in a war situation or a battle because you're just blocking yourself underground. It's the easiest siege in the world if they want to, if they find out where you are. So 
I I think that definitely there's something interesting going on. And I kind of have this obsession as well, which people may know from my videos, um, about the Maltese catacombs, because they're completely unusual. They're not the same as the Paleo-Christian catacombs that you find in other parts of Europe. Okay, there's definitely some some differences and there's rumors here that they're all connected and it, it's just a rumor but they say like if a sheep goes down in one village it can show up in a catacomb in another village like you know 20 miles away and i i don't know i i always wonder were they repurposed as paleo-christian catacombs but were had another purpose originally um, and could it have been a similar function to these underground cities? I don't know. But then again, I go to them a lot and they seem too small for that. But you never know. I, I think that there's a, every possibility that some cyclical cataclysm was happening because I'm definitely a more into Randall Carson's work in the sense that I do think there is a lot of evidence for his hypothesis. Um, well, the hypothesis that he mostly talks about anyway. Um, and I think that if you were protecting yourself cyclically from a cataclysm that was happening like every year, then it would make these cities or underground shelters would be sufficient for that. Not to live for really long periods, but for short, short time. Okay, go ahead, Sandy. Let's keep it short and then yeah, we'll move on to the last not, episode. That, that, that's pretty much exactly what I was going to say. I mean, they, they say that they would have been built to run away from, but then you've got, you know... They mentioned you've got, you know, the Cheyenne Mountains and you've got underground bunkers underneath the White House where people go and, and they're built as refuges and you've got seed banks. So in, in keeping with the cataclysm theory, I, I do believe that given its location to um, Gobekli, I think that while they were, I, well, my theory is quite wild. I think that all the sand that they used to dig this stuff out well, they should investigate that and see if it's not the, what they buried Gobekli Tepe with. Hmm, interesting. Um, and also there was another you know, underground cave called K. Makli, I believe, or something along that line, which is five, mi five miles away from Derinkuyu, where they found some sort of tunnel that might connect the two. I don't know if they've gone through the whole thing yet. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. I got to wrap this up within the next 10 minutes, and I'm sorry, I don't want to cut this short, but you know this next episode this is something we've talked about so much on the show that i think we can knock this out fairly quickly um, which is cataclysms in rebirth i think is the name of the episode uh, and he talks about the serpents in the sky aka comets and asteroids uh, he talks about species with amnesia uh, which we've forgotten our ancient past um, and he shows you know talks about like these archetypes showing up around the world and then we get to um, the main uh, show, which is uh, Randall Carlson, who we recently had on. Um, we've had him on a few times. The first two episodes we did with him, we did uh, on Atlantis and metaphysics and things like that. And then the most recent episode we did, we talked about like the Scablands and the um, all his research into the flooding and everything like that. So I have to I have to say something, Mike. Go ahead. Do you know that other, other than meeting Graham Hancock and other the, all the other cool shit I've done this year? One of the other highlights of my life was that I've inadvertently been in the same cast as Randall Carson because you put my plutonium photo behind you, and I loved you for that. Oh, yeah, yeah. I did give you a shout-out. I've been in the same podcast as Randall Carson. Yes! Oh, 
<laughs> so yeah, and shout out to we're gonna. I want to do an episode with you too, where if you have photos, I want to I want to look through some of your photos, and we'll talk about uh, the Lucidian mysteries and things like that. So, uh, but in this episode, he goes to the Channeled Scablands, uh, where Randall Carlson has done a lot of research. Uh, it's two thousand square miles. There's giant scars, potholes, and waterfalls. All those things uh, Randall points out in the last episode we did with him. Uh, dry falls. Um, you know the Grand Coulee. Um, and also Randall does trips and I'm, I'm going to plug them here. Randall does trips out to the scab lands with, uh, the brothers of the serpent and stuff every year. So check that out if you're interested in going on one of these trips. Um, and all this is the result of catastrophic flooding, which mainstream would argue took slow, you know, it took a long time, slowly over thousands of years. And he's saying, um, no, this, this happened quickly and maybe there was bursts of it, but it definitely, um, catastrophic, um, yeah, he talks about Wallop Gap or Wallula Gap, um, you know, the canyon, uh, massive basalt outcroppings, all this wonderful geology. Um, and yeah, Alan West, who's one of the scientists studying that, the 2007 black uh, paper on bl the black matte layer, uh, which would point to the fact that, um, you know, there's these layers of these, these different uh, microspherules and nano diamonds and all sorts of stuff and melted glass and platinum and iridium um, things that you wouldn't find unless there was some sort of impact a comet or um, an asteroid um, and it shows up all over the world from michigan to belgium to syria i think they mentioned so um, there is the comet research group studying this this is real science i think this is what graham should have stuck to for most of these episodes was this idea of the younger dry uh, hypothesis because he has been trumpeting it and it is steeped in real science uh, that might be controversial to some but it's a real thing it's a real hypothesis um, and yeah he talks about the torrid meteor stream and uh, Comet Enki and the possibility that when we or in enter into the Torrid Media Stream, we're opening ourselves up to one of these cataclysms uh, and referencing back to that Pillar 43 he mentions. Um, so basically this episode is about the Younger Dryest Impact Hypothesis, um, which I believe there's something to. Something definitely happened at the, last, uh, at the end of the last Ice Age. Again, keep it short. I have only five minutes here, ladies, if each of you want to add a little something and then I'll wrap it up. Well, I think that the importance of putting this episode at the last is that it lends credence to the other, to what Graham is trying to say, because he's been saying all along through all of his books that he believes that there was a previous civilization that was wiped out by some kind of cataclysm. And science has said, uh, no such cataclysm, no such thing. We've, and then we've had discoveries like Gobekli Tepe, and we've had discover, uh, science now agrees that there is, that there was such a thing as the Younger Dryas impact. Um, I've seen people say that there is no uh, evidence of craters. They are actually discovering evidence of craters. There was some um, asteroid that hit Siberia that, I mean, if it was any bigger, it would have done serious damage. Yeah, and the I think Tunguska. That, yes, yeah. I think that the science is interesting, but I think that mythology is, is extremely important. Um, and by adding all these sites and not just going back to Egypt and not just discussing science, which would bore me because I, cause I'm not into that kind of nerdy stuff. He's brought in, and he he's given, he's he's lent, he's lent um, credence to the fact that there wasn't. A, I mean, we who cares what these people are? I mean, we all come from um, a black monkey. So why are we arguing about rape? Oh, rape, not race. I I don't know. 
Um, but I, I do think that there was a civilization. I don't know who they are. I just want to get to the bottom of it. And I think everybody would like to know where they really came from. And all of this put together makes absolute sense. And it kind of, in a way, vindicates everything that, that, that he said. Okay. Thank you, Sandy. Um, Laura, if you can give us a quick little thing here for this, and then I'll start to wrap it up. Yeah, sure. Well, I'm, I'm all over the younger Dryas impact hypothesis. I, I really like this one. And I think that a lot of mainstream geologists do actually respect Randall's um, work on it. Um, so, yeah, I, I think his work is very credible at this point. And the idea of the catastrophic flooding, okay, that's, that's less well appreciated by the scientific community. They're still going to keep saying that it was this, this gradual thing. Um, but I do think there's a lot of evidence for it. So, yeah. And of course, there's a possibility that the catastrophic, that whatever happened, the cataclysm is somewhat did wipe out a lost civilization. Okay, fine. However, I do think that we have so much evidence going back to that time period of how, um, of the sort of, fauna that was around, the type of flora that was around. We have um, a lot of evidence of Paleolithic inhabitants of different regions. So I just don't think that it, that a whole, lost civil, a whole civilization or the evidence could have just been completely wiped out and none of this other stuff would have been wiped out. I find that quite difficult to understand in my head. Um, but certainly I do, I do think there's a lot of evidence for the cataclysm itself and whatever that wiped out. I don't know. Yeah. I agree with the cataclysm. Again, I think he should have stuck to that more. That's my main critique on the whole thing, aside from too much of the attacking stuff. I don't think he needed that. I think he just needed to do Am I allowed show. to say something about psychedelics? Just, just, just we got to get go. I, I literally have to go, Sandy, and I will have you back on, and we can talk about this as much as you want when I have you back on. I have to wrap it up. My wife is going to kill me. So, um, Sorry, Amanda. <laughs> I love everybody stay safe out there and we will do a follow i want to do like a follow-up too at some point with both of you and we can talk about other archaeological stuff as well uh but uh, and i hate to do this but we just took up too much time and that's partly my fault from earlier so um but yeah thank you both so much check out megalith hunter on youtube i have her link down below check out them both out on uh, twitter uh at part of the series for sandy and at uh megalith underscore hunter um and you can check me out at, at Mike Escape. Shout out to Shane. Thank you for the super chat. Shout out to Leah, Lee, Taz, uh, John, you know, anybody that was in the uh, Sherman, anybody that was in the uh, the um, the chat. We, we really appreciate it. And I love everybody. And if you want to support the show, just click the link tree link down below. And uh, this was a fantastic episode. And I think we all can agree that there's a lot of good parts about it. But then we also have our own little critiques. So. Uh, I think we voiced all of our concerns. And uh, again, we love everybody. Stay safe out there. We'll catch you next time. Peace. Bye.